Friends, writers, journalists, lend me your inks. That's right, listeners, you're back with the Nib Section, official podcast of Fountain Pens, Oceania. Uh, we are back for our, our second episode of 2020. I'm uh, going to welcome our two regular co-hosts, generous benefactor Sharon. Welcome back. We're back, 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 back again. <laughs> uh, and Di, welcome back once more, uh, fearless leader uh, once again. Good to be here. Uh, as always, my name is Chucks. Do we have what we're writing with handy? I do. I have it in my hand right now. Everyone does. Well, uh, Di, why don't you kick us off? I'm writing with one of my earliest fountain pen acquisitions that I have still managed to hold on to. It's my Sailor King of Pen Prophet in the Ebonite. Um, it's black with this really beautiful gold clip. And the main feature and the reason that I shelled out a lot of money for it is the nib. It's an original Nagahara specialty nib. It's the King Eagle, the three stacked King Eagle nib, which is very, very hard to get nowadays. I'm not sure if currently Sailor still produces these. Yep, in the new specialty range. But fun fact, that that pen came in towards the, I think, within the first 10 episodes of the nib section. That's how long you've had it. Yeah, I've had it for several years now. Um, it's inked with Kiona Oto's Hisoku, I think. It's Is the that super gray. dry in this? I so don't, it's a super dry ink. Um, Kiona Oto in general are quite dry. Um, they're much drier than I prefer, but in in this particular nib, it's fine. It doesn't skip. It doesn't dry out. It shades beautifully, but that's because it's like a super wet, super fat nib, right? And that's the only sort of nib I would use this ink in. Um, I have got my uh, Maruzen uh, lemon. lemon 150th anniversary. Lemon. It is back. It's got a Mark Bacchus um, needlepoint on it. Uh and uh, I believe we mentioned last episode that uh, Fude fan Jacob um, he was instrumental in me being able to get this. So thank him thank and uh, thanks Sharon for uh, enabling that. I'm just showing Chuck a photo of the uh, Mont Blanc Year of the Rat ink, which is a very very yellow Ugh. ink. Um, which is funny because last year the Year of the Pig uh, is also a yellow was ink. also a yellow. But I'm pleasantly um, comforted by the fact that this year's, the year of the rats, Mont Blanc yellow ink is much nicer than last it, year's. It is better than, it's like It's marginally halfway, more legible. Yeah, yeah. And it's more it's orange and shady. More like the golden yellow. Yeah. What are you writing with today? I am writing with a Graf von Faber-Castell classic. Great pen. Great pen with the snakewood finish. Even better pen. Better, better, yes. Um, and so this one, it was a, and I put this very loosely, a limited edition, but seems to pop up everywhere, um, a limited edition of 1,761 pieces. It's not numbered, but um, it's just a standard Graphon Faber-Castell classic, but it's got a snakewood barrel. And I love snakewood as a material. It's extremely hard to work with. Um, also, Brian tells me it's a very hard wood. Uh, every single pen is different because of the snakewood pattern. It looks different. Um, I have three of these, I'm not going to lie, because I fell in love with three different um, snakewood barrels. And every single year, 
I pick a blue ink that I use as my go-to blue ink for the rest of the year. And we have a decision? And we have a decision. So last year, as most listeners will know, I had Pilot Asagal in my daily writer for an entire year. And I finished a bottle of Asagal. It was a bit of a struggle towards the end, but I did finish it. This year, I think is going to be an even bigger struggle because I have picked the Graf von Faber-Castell Cobalt Blue, which is a 75ml bottle of ink. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and that's really what nice blue, though. It's great blue. And it's what I've currently got uh, in this particular Snakewood Classic. So the Graf von Faber-Castell Cobalt Blue, I'm going to put like a, just a plug out for it. If you haven't tried it, it's a very reliable, really dark blue. So it's not blue-black. It's a dark blue. It doesn't really lean too uh, purple. It's just like a dark blue. That's not quite blue-black. It's, it flows really well, much better than most of the other Graflon Faber-Castell inks that tend towards the drier end. So it's a medium flow uh, ink. It it's a blurple. It's not a blurple. It doesn't have that much purple in it. It's like you can have a look at my writing right here. It's not purple. It's just dark blue. Like it's not blurple. No. That is definitely blurple. Well, look at the – that's the writing right there. Um, it's not really blue. I wouldn't classify it as a blurple. It's a dark mm, blue. I would. It's a dark blue. It doesn't have that much purple <laughs> in it. it. It has some sheen, not too much sheen, but it flows really well. It's really legible. It's um, water resistant, I want to say, because that's what most of the Graphon Faber-Castell inks are. And it comes in a very pretty bottle. So that's my ink of the year. Watch this space. Maybe by the end of the year, I'll say that I finished a 75 mil bottle of this. I think that's going to be a real struggle, not going to lie. But it's my ink of the year. It's my blue ink of Just the year. Just need to make an effort to write lots. Well, so each year I try and make an effort to finish three bottles of ink. Last year, I didn't do so well. I only finished two bottles. So every year I finish a bottle of Aurora Black. Like that's my go-to black and it's the one that I always finish. And then I try and finish a bottle of blue ink, but I pick and choose between the various brands and whatever it is. So I had Asagal last year. The year before I had, I think it was Sailor Blue that I had the year before. The year before that I had Private Reserve American Blue or no, DC Super Show Blue, American Blue, American Blue, which I did finish. Um, But this year is Cobalt Blue. I try and finish that and I try and finish one obscure ink. Do you ever reach the middle of the year and like wish you hadn't picked this particular blue? Like you're just sick of it or it has qualities that you don't like anymore? really it's it's this weird thing where I think at the beginning of the year I go through that oh, oh I wonder if only I'd pick something else I was, but, I was gonna say yeah. Sharon's commitment issues tend to present earlier on <laughs> yeah exactly the year. exactly like by the time I get to like you know month three of just constantly using this ink I'm so used to seeing it that if I have a different ink like the first couple of weeks of this year where I switched from Asagal to Cobalt Blue, it was a real shock to the system. My eyes couldn't take it. It was like, why is it not bluer? Why is it not lighter? Why is it not more Iroshizuku? Whereas um, I think give it maybe about another month or so, I'll be very used to this particular ink. I don't have commitment issues once I've committed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Can let's. We, can we get that sound bite? <laughs> I don't have issues once I've committed. <laughs> Um. Let's move on to uh, news. I actually have something to raise in this section. Sharon. Is it about the Platinum Curia Doso? Oh, oh, <laughs> no, no, let's not, let's not talk okay. about this yet. Sorry. The, the Platinum um, Clicky Pens. Yeah. I don't like it. 
That's my word on it. And I think it's too expensive for still nib. It looks cheap. It's 80 bucks. But it's it's a, like a transparent barrel. It looks like it's a, a disposable nib, pen. Though. It's a preppy nib. Oh. I was going to ask you, Sharon, what are you going to use this year for your work notebooks now that Milligram has stopped stocking the life capan? <gasps> sad face. <laughs> so um, Di and I have shared our griefs about this. Um, so Di and I are both really big fans of the Life Kappa notebooks. I think it's 48 pages. Um, I like the grid ruled. It's actually a brown grid, which is quite unique. And it's stitch bound. Yeah. So, so it really holds up. It really, time. really holds up to being beaten and tossed around. I go through about maybe like a good five to five to seven of them a year, depending on how much I write. Um, and I use them at work as my go-to work notebook. I've got a stash of them at work. But last year, well, towards the back end, not even last year. So the year before, I noticed that Milligram had upped the prices on these and I wasn't impressed. So previously you could get them for $5 a notebook and then two years ago. And they were really reasonably priced yeah, at $5. Yeah. Mind you, like $5 it is a bit pricey, but it was a very good notebook for all the qualities, worked great. Um, and I loved the style of it. But two years ago they upped the price to $10.00. Oh my gosh, they doubled the price. $10 for one 48-page notebook, which if I just bought one from Spyrax or whatever brand you get in the supermarkets, I could get one for like 40 cents. Anyway, $10, I wasn't going to pay that. I hoarded a whole bunch before they even upped the price. And then I made the call to never buy another one of them until they dropped the price back down to $5 or something more reasonable. They never did. Fast forward last year, we found that they no longer stocked them at Milligram. I was outraged and I was down to my last few of the grid notebooks. I had quite a few of the lined ones left, but the grid ones, I didn't have many left. So I was pretty sad. But and it's particularly annoying because I don't think Overjoyed ships these overseas. No, no. But um, I mean, I could always do a quick flight over to Singapore. That'd be a way more <laughs> expensive notebook. But um. So I've got five left at work. I've got a whole fresh five pack at work. So I think that'll last me to possibly the back end of this year, at which point I'm going to have to make a call whether I go with a thicker notebook, in which case I'll probably go with the Hobonichi, the Hobonichi grid, or whether I still want this type of like the 48 page um, like bound notebooks, which are just really light and easy to carry. I'm thinking I might just go with the Hobonichi ones because they're half the size of your other bound notebooks. Uh, it's Tomoe River paper. It's not my preferred paper for work. I actually prefer, I prefer the Life or I prefer the Midori paper because it dries quicker. But, um, you know, you get a decent number of pages and it's got the, um, it's got the grid ruling that I like. But hopefully I won't have to think about it until the back end of this year. So maybe come 2021 when we're doing this episode, I'll have an answer for you. I'm in the same situation where I have a stash. I have maybe six of them left, which will, should hopefully last me the rest of 2020. But then I have to figure out an A5 notebook that is not too thick um, to replace it with because I don't use it just for regular notes. I use it as my bullet journal. And so um, the way that I keep them in my rotafarden is that I have the bullet journal that I'm working on at the moment. So that has the current month. And then I keep a bat log. So I keep the previous bullet journal towards the back of my rotafarden. So I have the current month and as well the a, f a few months 
ahead. So if the notebook is too thick, then um, my rotofarden will be like extremely fat. And that was what was so great about the Life Kapan. It was only 48 pages, which is perfect. <laughs> Chuck is making oh a mess. Oh my God, Chuck. I'm, I'm just cleaning up Seb's hair. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, we'll have to check back in next year and see yeah, what we've done. I, I think this year I'll be okay, but towards the end of this year I might start panicking a little bit. But we're disappointed in you, Milligram. Milli- Lots of changes at Milligram. What <laughs> What's what going, going on at Milligram? Also, hot off the press, Milligram has just upped the Lamy prices. Yeah, so especially Lamy, for the 2000s. Lamy 2000 in Australia is now going to cost you 399 Aussie dollar maroos. Oh my gosh. But um, no, I, I think as part of the theme for 2020, I'm going to try and use up all of my stationery backlog. I have a lot of stationery. I have two cupboards full at the very least of stationery. So I'm going to try and make a concerted effort to actually finish some of it. First of which will be those cup and life notebooks. And then I'll start panicking after that. Okay. Um, onto the topic for this week. We are doing basically a follow-on episode of our Inks 101 from October 2017. Um, Sharon and I, well, Sharon put the question to me while we were on holidays. She was like, "Um, looking back, what has been one of the most popular episodes that we've done recently? And I said, well, people seem to really like our primers, you know, um, the episodes about storage, about inks, about paper, the ones that run through a topic um, in a very accessible way for newcomers and for experts alike. And ink has been something that people just really seem to listen to, first of all, when they are introduced to our channel. And I thought it'd be really good to uh, – no, I think Sharon thought it would be really good to revisit the topic and just catch the listeners up on what's been happening in ink in the last couple of years because there's been so much change and a lot of things – like the basics that we talked about in the episode are they still, still true. true. They still hold true. But um, what's popular, um, you know, the up-and-comers in the market, there's mm. been so much new developments. Yeah. And so this came about as a kind of a reflection on 2019 um, in terms of what was interesting in 2019, what were some interesting developments and interesting trends. And I think the last time we visited Inks was over two years ago. Do you feel old? <laughs> well, I, I actually did have the chance to talk to Incantadora, Anachiki, about Inks. Mm. So it feels more recent for me. <laughs> but so, she did the most of the talking. I remember this episode very, very vividly. We were in a room. We recorded we were at your it office. At my old office. We recorded it in a room that had really bad aircon sound. Sharon and I weren't even in that episode officially. No, we weren't. We we like butted in at one yes. point. Yeah. <laughs> Only Chuck is officially in that episode. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Joanne and Tav were also in it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was very much my I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> stage of and, of the pen world. And to be fair, the most memorable thing about that episode for me personally was Joanne saying, well, arsenic is natural. <laughs> Where we were talking about natural versus unnatural ingredients. And she said, arsenic is natural. Mm-hmm. Best line. Can we get her back? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Chuck. Let's uh, get Joanne back at some point. Well, it, it really was a, a long time ago. And, and like you've said, there's a, a lot has happened. Let, let's take a look at a few things. In two years, 
there's a lot of time for trends to show up and fall away. Absolutely. So two years ago, two years ago in 2017, when we recorded that Inks episode, I remember it was the height of glitterific, right? Yep. Everyone needed glitter in their freaking inks because of Emerald of Shavor, J. Herban, Emerald of Shavor. They needed glitter. And those? And those are, name me one that's still around and regularly used other than Emerald of Shavor, which I don't even use anymore. I've got a couple of bottles of it still, but I yeah. haven't used Emerald of Shavor in yonks. Like they haven't disappeared, but they're not. Um, they're not as there's prolific. There's no excitement. About. Yeah, there's not as excitement. I barely see anyone talking about um, Kainite de Nepal, which is the new Ji Aban um, What What's their name? For I believe they're called Jacques Herban. No, but that's no, their selective range. That's the thing. It's it's the They same. have two different ranges of inks oh now. My it's confusing. Yeah. No, but I thought the Shimmer inks were part of their Jacques Herban 1670 oh, range. Okay. Because they had to so. rename them all. They were no longer Jay Herban. Jacobin. <laughs> Jacobin. <laughs> well, um, whatever the, the newest one of the glittery inks of oh that my God, collection. The last one I It was the blue. Uh, the blue with the oh. silver shimmer. But I, yeah. I don't see anyone really writing about it. I haven't tried it yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I will at some point, probably, presumably. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, the last one of those that I had heard or had kept up to date about was the, the brown. Amethyst. Oh, okay. No, the Amethyst I like the brown. came after the Karub uh, de Shite. Carreau de Chypre. There you go. Carreau de Which is yeah. a perfume ingredient, which is why I know about okay, it. Okay, well, so that brown I hated, like with a passion. Um, the amethyst I never got a bottle of because by that point I was off the glitterific bandwagon. But if you think back, 2017 I think was like the peak of glitter. And, and Sheen was also And coming. 2018 yeah. was the year of Sheen where mm-hmm. everyone came out with, you know, nitrogen, uh, nitrogen blue and um, all of the other diamine ingredients. Um, incarnations that's the word not incantations incarnations incantations is a different podcast <laughs> oh you mean the iris- iridescings no 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 oh. so the um, they were diamine, from 2019 i think the diamine like skull and roses yeah. diamine jyla i can there we go that one like all of that stuff i thought really hit a peak in 2018 and then 2019 was the year of sailor uh, sailor ink studio one two three so it was all about the different shading duochromes really intense shading inks the color changing, color changing um, shading inks, which tended towards the lighter inks that had the more interesting uh, features to it. So, such as you know, the Sailor, obviously Sailor One Two Three, um, all of the Troublemaker, Milky Way, Abalone, and the other one, Kelp Tea, Kelp Tea, and Serena. I think is also Troublemaker, or is that Winter? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And then um, the one that we had, the uh, Bellflower, which Mm -hmm. I thought was one of the most most fascinating colour-changing inks, Um, the Yaching style. It was Yaching style Bellflower ink. Uh, Absolutely stunning. But last year, you really saw an uh, uptick in all of those lighter colours. Like a lot of studios were releasing all of the lighter colour inks. Horribly impractical for like day-to-day use. Lighting's are really just good for... I, I have found like for flight this, nibs. I mean, this is yeah. coming from someone who uses yellow inks. Even even the yellow, I don't write with on it. Like I have it in a double broad so that I can do headlines, and that's about it. I don't I don't use I don't throw a lot of it around. Like I definitely go through more 
black and blue than I go through um, mm. yellow. Yeah, I mean, last year, especially towards the back end, when Sailor even well, Sailor started. Um, maybe not started, but definitely popularized the whole shading and the color changing light pastel inks. They came out with their Manyo collection with Haha and Neko Yeko Neko Yanagi Neko Yanagi, which were their lighter colors of their Manyo collection. That were also massive shaders, really really complex colors. And I, I, I mean, I take a step back and I think, uh, yes, I've seen all of these trends come and go. I have been a big fan of the shading inks right from the get-go rather oh, than Sheen. Yeah. Rather than Sheen because yeah. I hate the inks that dry and smear. But what's going to be next? You've hit you know, you've done glitter, you've done Sheen, you've done shade. Do we just go back to the blackest black that could ever black around? Or combinations of those qualities like um, a color changing ink that also has glitter in it. So what I've been seeing on, um, I think I think it was Kat's Instagram, Inky Cat writes. She mentioned or she showed a photo of inks by a Korean brand called Tono and Lim. And are they Korean? They're I thought, Korean. I thought they were Taiwan. I'm pretty sure they're Korean. Let I me have a look. They were Taiwan. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tono and Lim. It's not live. We can edit this out. <laughs> Tono and Limbs, so they're Korean company. That's what I found on on Reddit, anyway. <laughs> Based in South Korea, according to Mountain of Ink. Made in Korea, according to another website. I'm pretty sure it's South Korean. I'm pretty sure it's South Korean. Um, so, so Tono and Lim, they seem to be very onto all the trends that we talk about. So they make glittery inks, they make pastel colors. They also make those, um, you know, color shifting inks that change color as they dry and seem to have different colors, basically in the same color. Like they sort of, they almost do a chromatography as you're writing with it, as you're, as it's shades. And I think they have some inks which are basically glittery, and also pastel. So it's like a glittery pastel ink. I don't think it will be popular, but I think they're doing something different. So um, on on Kat's Instagram, she has a swab of this color called phosphophyllite, I think is how it's pronounced. It's basically like a pastel green with a silver glitter Ugh. through it. <laughs> I, I have no idea how practical this ink would be. I'm pretty sure as it's practical illegible. As lemon. Yeah, what? but it's pretty. <laughs> we really got a whipping boy for this episode, don't we? Um, <laughs> Let I, me get a bowl of it out. <laughs> I, I think could, w- one thing that jumped out to me is what could become popular is we we haven't seen a huge amount through 2019, but I feel like I've seen more over the past couple of months of people trying to play around with uh, mixable inks like the platinum ones and i wonder if people are going to arrive at specific uh recipes is to... it isn't it also three oysters that has made like a mixing set yeah. i mean if you think I, about I, it i the... wonder if people are yeah. going to be like so like three drops of this and such and such drop of this and you get this ink and i don't i don't know if that is where it's going to go because 
I you get lumpy curdling ink. Yeah. Well. Well. Also, like when I get uh, when when I buy a, a a whiskey or a scotch, I never liked the whole like oh well this is how you have to drink it so that it's it's best. I'm like, look, if I don't like it out the bottle, then why do I? So what you add strawberry essence yeah, to your no, whiskey? Well, well, just just to be like, oh, you you know, like you're meant to add, uh, you know, you're buying the like, unadulterated product. Yeah, you're not yeah, buying yeah. like a mixer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If I then decide to do something with it, sure, it's fine. But like the base out of the bottle, I should like it. And I, I don't know. Like, uh, are you are you big on mixing watercolors? Like, how are? What do you mean? Watercolors are there to be mixed. Yeah, yeah but I, I, the, I mean, but like, if you're talking about inks, do you mix inks? The Hell only no. the only yeah. the only inks that I mix are my Kobe inks. Yeah, I never mix any. I ink. mix within the brand, and I l- because there's a couple of Kobe inks which are very pale, and they were doing like very pale colors in like 2015, 2016 before they were popular. Like number fifty six. Yeah, in the like higher numbers, there's some 56. very pale greys and, and pinks, which are really illegible. And so I've. I, I like those colors, but I can only use them when I add a few drops of another color to make it um, more saturated and just deeper so it doesn't, you know, fade once it hits the page. Um, there's like an ochre, which is really beautiful, but I have to add some like reddish brown. Um, that's the only sort of mixing I do. But I agree with you that I I, I think it was – I'm pretty sure I need to Google this. I think it was Three Oysters that made a pack um, – of mixable inks and it was like a set of all these little bottles and you could basically make a mixing chart with all the colors and it was like a project but like it was so much work before that when a uh, the Atramentus came out. I think I've spelled, uh, I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, they came out with their document inks. You can mix all of those. And the Storia. And, and the Storia and the Platinum mixable inks have been around for eons. They've been around for like a long, long time. And there was a website and I'm not sure who who did it, but there was a website who did a whole chart of what are the outcomes if you mix those inks. Yeah, I just Googled it. It's the Three Oysters DIY My Colour Kit, which has 12 bottles of different coloured inks. No, 10 bottles of coloured ink, two bottles of toner, um, like pipettes and like little jars and I stuff. I mean, from, from a company standpoint, even if you only make three inks and get sick of it. You've already bought the 12 bottles. You know what I mean? If, if people were to start mixing inks, it's beneficial to the, to the manufacturers. Yeah, I think yeah. I, this is definitely like a niche product and I yeah. don't see it becoming very popular. I don't think... S- uh, I, think it, I think it'll have its time and place. And I think things like Platinum Mixable, Storia, they were probably ahead of its time. Maybe we're at the point where you can't find your perfect colour in amongst the thousands of offerings from all of the various uh, ink brands and you want to DIY and mix your own. In which case, yeah, it could be the next big thing, but you're going to have to have that patience yeah. to try and experiment. And it's that that personal touch thing as well that a lot of the... This is my teal, yeah, hashtag 123. That a lot of the like stationary companies are, are trading on in that like level of level of customization and personability. I mean, speaking as someone who has played around with some watercolours and has done some mixing between her 80 different Kobe ink bottles, there is only so many attractive mixing potentials between... 10 bottles of ink. There's only so much you can do with 
those 10 selections. And I think it's the height of arrogance, I guess, to think that you're going to come up with this ingenious and really unique and personalized color just from playing around with that one color. I hate to break it to you. Like, what you come up with is probably something that someone else who has the same kit has also recreated. And the, the potential is just, I think, a lot more limited than you really think because a lot of the colours that you end up with are going to be some dirty shade of brown. That's Because that's just what happens when you mix colours. Yeah, yeah. I think with the pigmented inks... You, you probably see it stronger because it's more opaque as well. Like when you're mixing watercolours, what you end up with when you mix too many colours is dirty browns. Yeah, anyone who's ever washed their brushes in, in <laughs> high school art knows... Yeah. It's dirty brown yeah, at the end yeah, of the Yeah, it's basic yeah, colour theory. It's not a swirling rainbow in your mouth. <laughs> well, although, like, complete sidebar, I have watched one of those videos on YouTube because I went down the YouTube rabbit hole of... Um, uh, holographic nails or whatever, nail logical, simply nail logical, who mixed all of her nail polishes together into like this grand big mixture. And instead of getting a dirty brown, she got a deep purple. So maybe Magic. if you mix wow. all of your stuff together, you don't get a dirty brown, you get like a deep purple. Simply nail logical. And I think the YouTube video title is one of her most popular ones. It's um, I think that's I probably because though there the... are very few nail polishes that are like in the yellow spectrum that can oh, no. add yellow yeah. into the colours. Really? Yeah. Okay. I might have one in my drawer right I'm not, here. I'm not <laughs> okay. super equipped for this conversation. <laughs> if you want to let me know when I can tap. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like it was just one of those things where you mix. She mixed a whole bunch of different colours together, and instead of getting a brown, which is what I thought she'd get, she got a purple. What we're touching on is that the market does, on not just a trend um, standpoint, but um, in terms of what everyone is doing, it does feel like the market is very saturated. I am so Like when I was doing some research for this episode, I barely touched on the possibilities that were available, but already I felt overwhelmed by all the brands that I never knew existed. Like as preparation for this episode, I went and read that extremely long post that Jägen wrote, uh, which yeah. was his summary for 2019. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very long. Go and read it if you're very interested about inks and what each company is up to in 2019. But there were so many brands there that I either hadn't thought about in Yonks. Such as? Um, such as like Toucan Inks, the Australian brand, which like I don't like it slipped my mind completely. I don't think I've heard about them for the last three years. Um, or Diatramentis, their inks, which I really only think about in relation to their document pigment, white. their document, yeah, their their water resistant inks. Well, it, I, I feel like it's it like anyone that's ever flicked through Netflix for like forty five minutes only to watch a show that they're Called already the familiar with, <laughs> right? Only to watch something you that, and the Untamed. <laughs> but there's this. When you have too many options, it's like when I go to a restaurant and their menu is six pages. No, I'm not. I'm not eating. I don't trust that chef. No, I don't. Like, how do you? You can't keep a mise en place or like a storeroom with all those ingredients and keep them fresh. That's just impossible. I, I love going to a restaurant that's just like, here's the six things we do and you're going to love one of them. So like a Japanese style restaurant in Japan where they basically go, we do duck ramen. You can have it with egg, without yeah. egg. If you cold. don't like it, yeah, yeah, yeah. beat it. And, yeah. No, and, and that's the thing that like people specialize and just sit in a thing. Like a ramen restaurant is a ramen restaurant and there 
they'll pr- even within that just being a ramen restaurant, they'll be like, we do miso. So here's the um, something that I noticed when I was looking at these new companies and as well as the old players. A company like Robert Oster or like Sailor, for example, I'm really impressed at their ability to produce inks in all types of trends and fads and inks with all sorts of different behaviours. Um, and this also goes for like Diamine, which is the really big player in the ink market. Massive. I, I believe is also the maker of the Ackerman inks. Yes, yeah. Ackerman inks and a l- extremely high number of like show and um, specialty inks. If you look at Diamine, Sailor, Robert Oster, and Robert Oster, incredibly impressive because he's only been in the market for like the last five years or so. Um, they have shimmer inks. Well, Sailor don't have shimmery inks, but they, um, Robert Oster and Diamond, they have shimmer inks and glitter inks, but they also have like pastel colors. They have sheening inks. They have your general normal saturated inks. And they also like, they don't specialize in any one particular thing. And I think that's part of what allows them to have a lot of longevity in the market. Whereas the new brands that become known for one particular thing, I think there's a lot more potential for us to get fatigued of them. Um, like I remember when Vinter inks just sort of appeared. Vinter and Krishna. Sheen. So the first it was Krishna. Sheen. Krishna is the super sheen. Vinter is the sheening and they also do the watery watercolour inks. I only know about their super sheeny inks, that's it. Yeah, and once you get over that excitement, they're like, what else are you doing? Um, they don't have that back catalogue that they've built up to maintain your interest. I feel like last year, a lot of international players came on to um, our field of notice, either because they're new or because they found distributors um, and retailers internationally or they had websites that could ship internationally. I'm really curious to see how many of them can basically keep it up the next couple of years. Who will be like the next Robert Oster or the next KWZ or Organic Studios? KWZ. Glad you mentioned this. I like KWZ. I saw this online recently. But um, so Ink House in Hong Kong, which you've been to, like the fantastic store store with like – with like rows and rows and rows of inks. So they've got their own um, self-branded inks now, which are actually made by KWZ. Fun fact. That's so surprising. Yeah, it's it's an interesting combination that they would go all the way to Europe. Um, I think I think they're Polish. Yeah, so Warsaw, to Europe. Yeah, to Europe to get KWZ to manufacture their inks. Anyway, I thought that was actually quite interesting. Um, but I think a lot of the brands that you've mentioned, other than Sailor, they're exclusively ink-only manufacturers, which also, I think, begs the thought around how do pen manufacturers keep up to date with ink trends? Or do they just say, screw it, we're not going to bother, we're just going to do our own thing and we hope that other people will jump onto our bandwagon? So – and. Like the one that on top of my mind is Mont Blanc. And then last year we saw the new crystal uh, inks from Lamy. And we also saw new inks from Aurora last year as well. New whole new colour range. And mind you, Aurora were going really, really strong with black and blue for like a good 10 years before they introduced blue-black. And only, what, two years after they introduced, two or three years after they introduced blue-black, they came out with whole, what, 10, 10 or 12-colour 
palette of inks. I think it ends up only being like seven colors because they include the three original colors in the set of 10 limited edition inks. Currently, I think it's still being marketed as limited edition for their 100-year anniversary. Okay. But I've heard, um, so the news kind of leaked out of the Philly Pen Show from the distributors there that Aurora might be releasing these anniversary air quote, inks as individual colours at some point in the near future. Um, But if you look at those colours, you know, there's like an orange, there's like a very watery sort of purple, um, and there's like a green. They're not colours that conform to current trends. They're just very run-of-the-mill colours, you know. Um, And I think, yeah, and they're basic. And I think if you look at most of the brands that are also pen producers who produce ink, Lamy, uh, Graf and Papa Gastel, Aurora, as you said, most of them, they are very conservative in the range of colours that they put out and also in the number of colours that they put out. And then you've got Mont Blanc who does And then you have Sailor. And then you have Sailor, of and course. And Sailor, Sailor, if we put Sailor to one side because I think a lot of their inks in their standard range are pretty standard uh, and standard. But um, but Sailor have so many different ranges. Yeah, Sailor have a lot of ranges, but where they get a lot of their kudos is in their, like, exclusives. Um, but if you just think about, like, the big ink manufacturers and their standard ranges, I think the one who does the most innovative work at the moment is probably Mont Blanc. I mean, it's not innovation in the way that you want to see it. But Mont Blanc have as many misses as they have hits. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly the mm. point. Like, But they also have the longevity to absorb those. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And I will say, like, all opinions aside of Mont Blanc as a brand, I think it's very interesting to see them innovating after so many years of putting out the same 149, the same 146, um, the same 145. But it's really interesting to see them innovating with something – that the pen market actually wants to see, you know, with like a flex nib. That, this the, year they're coming out with yeah, like that, an architect nib. They came out with perfume ink, which I still have a bottle I haven't opened because I'm too afraid to smell what type of perfume it is. Which one was that? I that have the got? maroon. Oh, I have the vetiver green, as you know. And I was shocked to find that the vetiver green in the perfume um, ink collection isn't Color-changing ink. Did you know that? Well, I know that because you showed it to me and you were outraged. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's certainly not marketed as a color-changing ink. So you put it down. It's a beautiful, like a fresh, fairly pale leaf green. But over the course of a day and not even under intense UV light, but it changes to this like icky yellow that's barely legible. It's pea yellow. It's it's it greenish is. pea yellow. It's pea yellow. I don't know what's wrong if it's uh, if it's just my bottle. Because it's such an expensive ink, there's um, – Like really expensive. Very expensive it's ink. Like, Almost like $100, I think, with it's the bottle. It's more expensive than the Platinum Curia Doso, <laughs> Doso, Doso, the clicky Platinum. Yeah. <laughs> and, and certainly like much more expensive even than the Jacoban – they're, they're, they're the, the big pretty bottles. It is the most expensive ink that I know. Yes. Well, I don't expect that at that expense for an ink to perform so unreliably. I don't think it was like something to do with the way that my ink was stored. I bought it directly from the Monbonk store and I was using it within the, a day of buying it. And because it's a new release, I don't think it's an ink that's been hanging around in the store. So I just have to assume that 
some of those inks weren't properly tested and just it's do a weird feature, stuff. not a bug. Well, the the other thing is that we're we're so used to established companies doing safe, reliable things that when they when something escapes their notice, it's very surprising. So something like Star Ruby last year having an effect on people's pens was that's not really in keeping. That with, was really surprising. It's not in keeping with Pelican. What was it doing? Uh, it was staining. staining people's pens. Including Pelicans, it stained yeah. a lot Do you of think Pelicans. it's just a matter of in the rush to have a new product out there that companies just haven't been doing as much rigorous testing? I think, I think it can be. And I think when we – there's a, a, a risk that we accept if we are like exploring with uh, you know, a boutique ink maker that maybe this won't work with our stuff. But That's when, why Sharon avoids boutique inks. Yeah, yeah. I don't buy them anymore. Yeah. But – even if you stick to that, when, when the established makers do something that, you know, presumably to compete with the market share that the, those boutique ink makers are, are um, taking advantage of, that they have mistakes as well on the way. And it, um, but they're more, like I said before, they're more able to absorb those losses than the boutique companies are. You, you touched on something, Sharon, which was, the production supply chain about well i think both of you touched on it we were wondering um where yaching style inks were manufactured no tono and limbs oh tono and limbs yeah this is something that a question that i keep thinking about when i was doing research about brands so you have the established brands that you know make their own ink But then there are so many boutique brands who make such small batches that you really start to wonder, are they doing it in-house or are they outsourcing it? And this question came up, especially for me, when I was thinking about the um, Standard Binary, who is an Australian um, retailer and recently came out with their... Range of six inks. Yeah, um, a, a very small range of inks, which I have to assume are not being manufactured by themselves. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know who makes those inks for them. Nothing about the company um, presents them to be, you know, they're, they're book binders. They make stationery. They make notebooks. But nothing in their repertoire suggests that they have the infrastructure to be making their own inks or the knowledge. So um, I'm really curious, like, who makes these boutique brands? And I have to assume that a lot of them are probably getting their inks made through a central company like like you know we all hear the stories about how dying mine makes probably makes inks for a lot of brands not just pw ackerman yeah yeah yeah. and it's but it you can't be and I'm, i'm gonna go into this a bit later on um but going about making your own ink is such a cloak and dagger process it's not very transparent so what happens if you're a company that wants to get in on that and you don't want to go through the trouble of teething and figuring out how to do it? It's easier. You don't want to like shell out for the R&D. Exactly. So it's easier to just go to someone that already does that mm-hmm. and be like, can you make these five to ten just for me? And obviously you'll get paid for that, but we stick our name on this. And you know, and then you don't have to deal with the problem of potentially putting out an ink 
that will destroy people's pens yeah. and then ruin your reputation forever. <laughs> yeah, and if you do, you have someone you can point at. Private labeling. Isn't that what it's called? Private labeling? Yeah, and it's, it's like, uh, you know, there's X amount of people building computers, but how many, like all of those microchips come from only X amount of places. So there, there can't be that much manufacturing. This really... Um, interested me because there was a conversation fairly recently on Fountain Pens Oceania about pigment manufacturing. And what I know about the manufacture of pigments is that it's incredibly, it, it's basically an oligopoly. Like there is a very small number of big chemical companies that manufacture the pigments that are used in industries across the board, you know, whether it's for painting cars or houses or used in oil paints. And further down the production chain, I guess, you have those pigments being used in ink companies. And But they all source it from the same, you know, big chemical companies. And I assume that these are a lot of pen brands that also get their ink being manufactured by a small number of ink manufacturers. So this is all just conjecture, of course, but looking at ink manufacturer as a whole, I have to think that for a lot of small pen brands, it's a process of discussing with a manufacturer, these are the sort of colors that I want, and they coming back to you with a few options, and you deciding among those options which you would like in your collection. So there's a, a process of dialogue, but also um, a limited range of options, really. I think that cuts down on the potential for creativity. And there is much more an emphasis on following trends rather than making trends. Because you have like a small maker saying, you know, if I'm going to make 10 inks, um, I'm going to make inks that are what's popular at the moment. And there's going to be, you know, like three sheening colors, maybe one glitter or whatever. And you're not willing to take that risk of putting out a color in your first range that is going to set a new trend. So they're not likely to be innovators is what I'm getting at. And you but is that necessarily a bad thing? Like, do we always want something that's new and fresh and innovative to just catch on to become the next Instagram trend? Or do we want something like, and again, I think back to tried and tested and true inks, um, such as my Aurora Black, right? I've used a bottle of Aurora Black almost every single year since 2005, except for like the five years in between where I didn't use fountain pens. But I've used like a bottle of that every single year and I have never felt the need to change that because it's so tried and tested and true. Just but like that with that is kind of the point that um, I think Di might be touching on in that there's already like there's already the fail safe, which is your Aurora Black and how much space is there for other fail safes? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that there's, I think, a lot less potential for those small brands to become established and to ride out trends, you know, to build up a brand that becomes a classic, something that will survive whatever the fashion is of the moment. So, you know, it comes back to our question of oversaturation and how many of the companies that are we're currently talking about will still exist in five years. I mean, that's a good point because if we think five years beforehand, what were the new players in the market and are they still big players in the market? And the ones that I can think of off the top of my head are Jehoban, 
was relatively new at that stage, um, especially with the 1670 line. They blew up then. Um, KWZ came, came around, around about that time as well. Robert Oster. I'm drawing a blank for a lot of other things. When did Organic Studios come into the Well, I think about two, three years ago, three years ago maybe. Um, Not that long ago. But if you you try and project maybe three years into the future, how many of those brands are still going to be, you know, alive and strong? Was it like 5% of companies make it to 10 years? Yeah. So I reckon Robert Oster will stick around for like at least the next three years. Um, KWZ, I think, will stick around for the next three years. Jehobam. Maybe, but then a lot of the boutique brands, like we've seen it in the Australian market, right? Um, What is it? The snake collection that's now no longer around. Bookbinders. Is it Bookbinders? Yeah. Yeah, the Bookbinders. um, Which is a shame. Collection. That's no longer around. They no longer make that ink. Um, That didn't last. And it wasn't because they were bad inks, you know? It was just, I think the market is very, very saturated. And I don't think newer is always better. I am a traditionalist. I think Waterman Blue is the best ink in the entire world. Despite all of the other love I show to all of the other brands, I think Waterman Blue is the best. And Aurora Black. If I had to have two inks for the rest of my life, it would be Waterman Blue and Aurora Black. And I'd be a happy gal. No murrahs and lemon. There's there's something we've got here about pens and ink developing alongside each other. This is a theory that um, I think Sharon had which is that the whole um, expansion of fountain pen inks in the market came as a direct result of the wide appeal of demonstrators in the fountain pen world. Yes, I remember having this conversation. (laughs) I was was trying to articulate this. So um, because I I think – I don't think that fountain pen makers react to – ink makers i think it's the other way around i think absolutely i think ink makers respond to what's happening um in the fountain pen nib and production world yeah essentially the fountain pen makers are the infrastructure that the ink makers work with and i think sharon's point was that or her theory was that when fountain pen demonstrators became really popular maybe around eight seven years ago Mm. or they became more widespread and people started Instagramming and blogging about them. That's when people started thinking, hey, maybe I should have an ink that's not blue or black in my demonstrator so that it looks it looks really much nice more for appealing. that photo. So when yeah. you backlight that demonstrator and the half-filled barrel of ink in there, it glows or it's got some type of different appeal to it. And I think there's also like a self-perpetuating thing where now you have um, fountain pen makers – producing pens in more colors in order to drive sales. And that means that people are thinking of what pen, what, what fountain pen ink should I put in this, you know, pastel pink pen? It doesn't have to be legible because I already have six other pens that um, have a legible ink. It just has to be a pastel p- pink ink to match my pastel pink matchy, pen. Matchy, matchy. <laughs> matchy, matchy. So I think um, ink production and ink sales are sort of follow the trends in pen manufacture. If I just throw a question out there to you guys, what do you think has stood the test of time? Which inks do you think have set themselves apart from all of the trends, the what's cool in the, on the, around the block today? Um, if you just think off the top of your head, other than Aurora Black and Waterman <laughs> Blue. Because I feel those like I haven't been team. around that long to, to – speak on this but like i think 
like shading inks in terms of a legible ink that fluctuates a little bit, like a darker ink that goes a bit light, those have been pretty solid. It's these like pastel shady ones that are relatively new, but in terms of like inks that have character but are still legible, um, those like I I think Tsukio was like my favorite ink when I came in, and is still one of my favorites, so, and that one's always legible. Always, I remember know. when that ink was released. Exactly. I had one of the original first release bottles. So I think yeah. um, it's very interesting to look at Bung Box and the colors that they choose to include in their collection because there's not been a lot of change in the Bung Box inks, and. Um, across that range, all of them tend to be quite saturated, dark in general. That like, They don't have a lot of pale pastel colours. Maybe sweet potato yellow is the lightest. They have hikari, which is that, that awful, bright, blindingly like nuclear green. I think it's called hikari. Hikari. Um, I think the lightest green they have is happiness, though. And that's oh, yeah, that fairly one, legible. Happiness. Sorry, I like happiness. Um, I think it's... Even in a fine – happiness is not nuclear green. It's like Quite a nuclear. pale grass green. Okay. <laughs> Agree to disagree. Mm. But um, all of the Bumbox inks are very practical, or most of them are. They haven't fallen into super sheening trends or the pastel trends or the, you know, the duo shading trends. And I think those inks will remain classics. But if you think about just the, um, your point around Bong Box, their first four, I want to say four inks, were based around the Penman inks. So Sapphire, Norwegian Wood, Piano Mahogany, and I can't remember the, what the last but one But all of them are exemplary of their type, right? Yes, they're very, very good they're, inks. They're very saturated, deep colours, which don't clog your pens. And they don't overly sheen. Yes, yeah, they sheen. sheen, but they don't. They're not sheen monsters. Yeah, correct. And that and that's it. You can make a poorly behaving ink for a year, but five years later, there's Looking no novelty. Looking at you, Organic Studios. Five years later, there's no novelty for it. I think dye mine has learned the lesson. So if you look at the recent dye mine sheen, the sheening inks like the iridescent inks, the Maureen, the Robert, even um, Jello Gamelan. I don't think they're as smeary as Shocking Blue. Is that the – no, Majestic Blue. <laughs> Shocking Blue is the Ackerman. I, I liked Majestic Blue. But Majestic Blue smudges so much. I mean, if you think about the old Diamine when they first came out with their super saturated inks, I actually quite like Majestic Blue. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the best ink, but it was not bad. Sargasso Sea was another that was actually quite good. It was quite grape? Good grape doesn't smudge for me. The interesting thing is that – if Diamine just makes inks for other people and lets them test the waters, then they already have the know-how to make the ink that will succeed if you know the people that go to them are figuring out the, the market. Basically, people want... Uh, after, after a year or two, you're going to have to have cleaned your pen out a few times. And if it's a pain to get rid of, they're probably not going to be in a rush to put it back in. So here's the interesting thing. How many of you, well, which of you have bought a, gosh, I've even forgotten his name. Um, the guy who makes Space State Blue. Uh, noodlers. Yes. Who has bought a Noodlers ink recently? Uh, not recently. <laughs> <laughs> or who has heard of a Noodlers ink recently? 
Like, what has Noodlers been doing in the last couple of years? Not I, much. I think that... Are they still making inks? I think that, yeah, I, I believe they still are. But I believe Noodlers gets a lot of early market share because Goulet is a fan of um, putting their stuff at the forefront. Um, I know that it tends to get top billing on a lot of Goulet recommendations, but... It's because Goulet has, a, has an ink made by Noodlers. Yeah. I still have some, but it's among the first bottles of ink that I bought. And again, you know, two years, two, two and a half years into this hobby, I think that now I've, uh, I have inks that will behave better, that have more consistent results. And like really af- after this level of it, consistency is what I'm after. I, I mean, there's probably unlikely for, for that again, like no, no color is worth the mess around anymore. Like I just want something that I know will work and that, that won't be a pain to get rid of. I mean, the last Noodler's ink I bought was over 10 years ago. Like That's how long it's been. And I no longer own that bottle. I sold it. I know quite a few people who use Noodler's black, the bulletproof black, as a fail-safe drawing ink for many years like it's uh, I think it was fairly popular among artists but now I would recommend all of them just use platinum carbon black black. instead it's It's a little bit more expensive but it dries a lot faster and it's incredibly water resistant and it's been tried and tested and has been around for even longer than noodlets I think I I did a test and equally well performing as the Diatramentus. Yeah, they're document black. Document black, both exact same standards as the as the platinum. That's the one that um, that's the one that Liz still uses. Yeah, Yeah. document black. And and um, I never had uh, a pen issue with any of those Noodler's inks that were reputed to happen. It was just behavior on paper that caused me to be like. No, I, I, something else can do this. Never seen an ink feather so much on Tomoe River paper as I did noodlers. In summary, a lot of us are quite fatigued, I feel, by the number Is of that the brands. theme of 2020? Fatigue? Fatigue? <laughs> I don't, look, I don't actually think I'm fatigued, but I'm a little bit tired of people trying to reinvent the wheel, I think, the wheel works great for a reason and they're and part of my question earlier around what's tried and true, what's well tested, what is a you know absolute fail safe. There's a reason why even up until now, Waterman is still p- pushing out the same, what, six colours that they've had in their inks and that's not changing anytime soon because it's worked for them and they're really good inks. You know, they're very reliable inks. There's a reason why... You know, we have a um, member of our Fountain Pens Oceania group who has, for probably the last 20 years, used Lamy Blue. That's all he's used in in every single one of his pens. Whether they're, you know, $10,000 pens or whether they're $20 pens, he's used Lamy Blue in them. And every, like, nibmeister that I've talked to or nib technician, they have, like, one or two particular inks and they're usually, like, Mont Blanc, Waterman or Aurora – that they use as their Testering. tester inks yeah. because it just works so reliably. Works. And, and you know what to expect. There's not going to be anything that takes you by surprise. So 
with all of the new inks that are coming out. Yes, I'm excited for some of them. I actually quite like the pastel colors. would never write with them, but I think they're quite pretty. But do you like looking at them or would you actually use them? I don't think I'd ever use them because no, would I. I have like 300 bottles of ink. That's I'm not the problem that I'm having. That's what I mean by fatigue. I am now at the point where I have no room to store more ink. Yeah, it's because your Kobe take up so much space. Yes, but I don't want to get rid of my Kobe. I love <laughs> my Kobe. My Kobe work reliably and most of them are not like pastel wishy-washy colors. Why would I get rid of something that I know works to try something that I'm uncertain about? Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 and I'm totally with you because I don't buy boutique ink inks anymore. I'll try them if I get given a bottle here and there. Um, I mean, I think the only boutique ink I bought last year was at the Melbourne Pen Show, and I don't intend on keeping that bottle. There's just no need in my eyes to put the health and well-being of my pens through anything that is try that is untested the the flip side the flip side of that just because we've we've been around uh for a, a little a little while but been if, doing this podcast for two and a half years yeah yeah absolutely but <laughs> Jeez, louise <laughs> but consider our pen collections as well if you're if you're someone that's uh, most of what you're using is like a preppy and syringes then you might be more willing to take risks uh, and to, to do that. And that, that just might be a different demographic and one that those ink makers are taking risks for. Uh, whereas we're kind of in the, the, um, we're in the business of pen preservation. Um, and so tried and tested, as Sharon has been saying, uh, is, the, is the key. This is, uh, I think, an interesting point in which to segue into our ink questions side of things, where we've had some people asking uh, about inks, uh, some of our regular listeners. And the first one is about that category of ink. Uh, it's from Mark Addington, and it says, In the excitement of exploring all the exciting ink options, do you think that some of the old inks get overlooked? Schaefer Red, Waterman Purple, Parker Blue Black standard Mont Blanc inks, etc. I just think that we don't talk about them because it's a given that they're good. And that there's no need to rave about Waterman or Aurora Black most of the time because you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, but then sometimes I think it's worth just mentioning them again to say, hey, every single year I use about two bottles of ink, three if I'm lucky, one of which is always going to be Aurora Black. And that's for the last, what, four or five years I've used a bottle of Aurora Black. Every single year I've used a bottle. Um, that's never failed me. I keep a bottle of Waterman Purple as my tester ink for how, um, how wet a pen is because Waterman Purple sheens green in very, very wet circumstances, like very wet. But I keep that with me all the time. It's my, if I'm looking for a, for a, a ink to use and I just can't think of anything, I use Waterman Purple. I kept Script Red as my go-to red before I found Sailor Gentle Irori. I'll give a short shout out to that because I think that's a fantastic red ink, which I like even more than Script Red. And Waterman Blue, like Waterman Blue is a default tester ink now i can't say that i have any experience with parker blue black 
I don't have any experience with quink inks um, other than the fact that I hated them when I did try them. They just behave really well. They they terrible go, colors though. Yeah, I mean, but if you're if you're using a pocket black or blue black, like just to write, they go away out of your pen when you wash it. There's like nothing nothing exciting to say, but there's also definitely nothing negative to say. Uh, next is from Mark Doyle. It says, uh, for the few years I've been interested in fountain pens, I've made my own color blends, mixing various random inks in various random quantities. Now I know that inks are sort of chemicals, thanks FPO, and that chemicals should never be mixed because they might eat feeds, nibs, sacks, hands, small cities. I've never had an issue in cheap or low mid-price pens. How much of an issue is it really? Did we say that it could eat a small city? Uh, well, it, it depends. <laughs> Must have been based at Blue. <laughs> there, is, there is that tiny miniature city that uh, Superman keeps. I will appoint myself as probably the one who has the most um, practical experience in terms of mixing inks. I would never mix an ink that was alkaline with one that was acidic. So I probably wouldn't mix a Sailor ink, which is mostly alkaline, with um, another brand of ink because they inks tend to be acidic in general. Um, I think you're probably more safe mixing colours of ink within a brand than across brands. In the worst case scenario, they could, you know, form participate. What's the word? Precip. Yeah, just say it properly. <laughs> Precipitate and clog your pens. That would be really bad. Um, but if it's a cheap pen, you know, maybe you're willing to take the risk. Um, but I would say adopt certain practices to limit the risk that you're going to be experiencing um, try to mix within brands don't mix in the pen mix in a vial and see what happens in you know over a course of a day or two and make sure that it doesn't form precipitate um, it doesn't do nasty things before you put it in a pen and I don't think there's anything wrong with mixing inks in general I think companies tell you they warn you not to do it because they're afraid that a nasty result will happen and then you'll go and bad mouth the company um, which is perfectly rational but if you take some precautions and you accept that the result is your fault um, then go ahead and you know put it in your inexpensive pens next up we've got tim perry saying would be great to hear about Aussie inks. Robert Oster seems reasonably well known, but I can't find much coverage of Van Diemen's or Blackstone. Also, I would like to know if diamine inks resonate with the TNS crew. Um, I actually think that Van Diemen's and Blackstone have pretty decent representation on Instagram and stuff. I definitely see those show up. Um, I haven't really used either. Oh, no. no. Um, because I've heard that they can be quite dry or them like moderate flow in general. And the colors don't really interest me. Don't do boutique inks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, but I love diamine. I mean, diamine, there's so much range. There's so much range with diamine that even if you don't, the fact that you don't like one is going to have no bearing on another. It, it might behave completely differently in your pen, on the page. But I have like, I have several diamine tried and tested inks that I use all the time. Absolutely. Um, Grape is great. Bach, one of the composer series. I also love Eau de Neal, which I use less because it's fairly pale, but it's beautiful. Twilight, which I know you like as well. Imperial purple as well. And imperial purple. Um, I don't use purple so much, but it's a really nice color. I think diamine 
maybe they get a little bit overlooked because their catalogue is so huge. But I think they have a few colours which, you know, are really um, stalwarts and popular across the board. Yeah. Also, I love Acrominix. So I love Acrominix. Next up, uh, this one is from Bindi Nguyen. Um, Apparently that's spelt, uh, that's pronounced wing. Nguyen? Yeah, Bindi Wing. Paul told me this. Sure, sure. I don't pretend to I speak. I feel like I've known. I don't pretend to speak I Vietnamese. Feel like I've known like five different Vietnamese people that have all said it slightly differently. Wang? Yeah. Um, but from Bindi, um, how many exclusive mega sheeners must there be in the market for it to be considered oversaturated? <laughs> I kid, but sort of not really because there are a lot out there and I just want a super sheener that won't, uh, so a bit more than Robert Oster Fire and Ice or Yamadori, that won't take days to dry, smear at the merest suggestion of sweaty palms, or leave hidden crumbs of dry ink around that randomly smurf bomb unsuspecting arms or tables. Looking at you, Diamine Jalur Gemilam. Is this too much to ask for? Any recommendations? Short answer. Yes, yes. it is too much it to, is ask, too for. Much to <laughs> ask for. The, the sheen is, is uh, I think, we, like we've, we talked about it in the Ink 101 episode. It's when the ink pulls up and there's too much of it to... There's evap- so much there's so pigment much, yeah. um, that it forms like a clot, <laughs> yeah. basically. There's, there's a reason that the sheen doesn't show up on the light parts of your ink and on the darkest end. So I, I think if you want something that you will... Uh, be written in an area that might receive spills and moisture and or like brush casually your hand over it yeah. um just avoid the machinas yeah. Yeah, yeah i think if you want to use one you kind of have to commit to using it for that purpose or um i think i think anna in candora her recommendation is to only use those inks in a extra fine nib a very or, dry or an extra fine nib. Or my recommendation would be to use the correct type of paper with it. So certain papers draw out sheening qualities other than Tomoe River. Do not use Tomoe River with a super sheening ink if you want to see the sheen because that stuff never dries. Um, again, put a plug out there. You guys hear me say it all the time. Midori. Midori is actually quite a textured paper, so it dries quite quickly. If you use a sheening ink on Midori, it does draw out the sheen, not as much as Tomoe River, but it dries a lot faster. Um, so sailor inks work really well on uh, Midori MD paper in terms of showing um, different uh, sheen um, characteristics, but it doesn't smear as much as Tomoe River. It still smears if you've got really sweaty palms, but it's not, not as bad. So is our recommendation avoid the mega sheeners, but use a paper that will show off the sheen that you have? Yes, correct. So you can use papers like Tomoe River with a regular ink. So I'm thinking about stuff like Yamadori, uh, Sailor Yamadori, um, Blake. Tokiwa Matsu. Tokiwa Matsu sheens quite a lot. Bumbox um, Lamont. I'm going to mention that at some point. I think yeah. Lamont sheens a lot. Um, Bungbox Sweet. Potato purple sheens quite a fair bit. Um, in terms of, I'm trying to think of other ones that sheen quite a lot as well. A lot of Japanese inks actually sheen a fair bit, but um, they don't smear. That's correct. what I appreciate about about right. them. It's it's the right amount of sheen. Yeah, the cobalt blue that I'm currently using from Graphon Faber Castell um, is a sheener. Uh, Lamy turquoise. 
fun fact, is quite a good sheener, as is Pelican Turquoise for the cheapest sheen that you'll get. Um, they're all really oh, good. Pelican sheen. for zero zero one turquoise. Yeah. turquoise. It's like $4 a bottle and it's actually a very good sheeny ink. Not quite as good as the Lamy Turquoise, but Lamy Turquoise um, is a good one there as well. Waterman Purple. I've said that in the past. Um, there are a lot of sheening inks out there. It's just depends on how much sheen you want. And my philosophy is if you want a mega sheener, why don't you just get a red ink rather than getting a blue ink that sheens red? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Uh, next one, also from Bindi. Um, she says, ink dupes. Proudest one you've personally discovered or one that someone else found that you were most happy exists oh okay i have something for this um so when i was in hong kong late 2018 i was with leo is this the sailor studio sailor studio one (laughs) (laughs) so i think it's only worthwhile having an ink dupe when you have one color that's either very rare or very expensive that you would like a more accessible or more inexpensive version of and so the ink that Everyone in their great uncle wants is Sailor Bumbox Sapphire. Hatsukoi. Hatsukoi. First, First love. love. Which is quite difficult to get or very expensive to get internationally, um, more accessible if you're in Japan. But if you want an ink that basically looks the same, behaves identically, it would be Sailor Ink Studio 740. So it's a, it's a very true say. blue and it sheens. Not It's not a massive sheener, but it does have a beautiful amount of sheen. It performs like all sailors. It's very reliable. It's a beautiful color. Um, I think it's a great office blue. And um, I was with Leo when he was showing me. And he was very proud of the fact that he found a dupe for Sailor Sapphire. <laughs> My one was just that Ackerman Helle Oka van Franz is a dupe for Mont Blanc Golden Yellow and comes in 120 mils instead of 30 mils. Mountain of Ink thinks that Toucan Yellow yes. um, is a close dupe for Hella Ackermannstrasse. Sure. Right, France. I have 120 mils. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I might be down 20 mils of it, but I've got a lot. Uh, I, I've got a moratorium on yellow inks at the moment, unfortunately. But inks that I would love to find um, dupes for is, one, um, Karandash Amazon, because it's discontinued. And, and two, uh, and you, you absolutely dispute the fact that Caveco Palm Green is not a dupe. It is color-wise a fairly close match, but in performance, it's not. Um, and the other one would be Bumbox Lamont, which I mentioned before, is this beautiful, deep royal purple that's also very bright and it has great gold sheen. Yeah, but like that would be a nice one to find a dupe for. I would like to find a dupe for the Mont Blanc perfume inks because I cannot afford $130 a bottle of ink. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Would Um, the dupe also have to have the perfume though? Well, that's the (laughs) point, right? (laughs) Um, So back in the day, I know there was a huge uh, drive to find a dupe for Penman Sapphire. And I was always of the belief that the Private Reserve American Blue was about as close as you could get. Now, in hindsight, these days, it doesn't look like it. But I think that's because the Penman Sapphire has changed over time. Mind you, Penman Sapphire was released in the 1980s. 
So now if you swab up Penman Sapphire and say American Blue or even Bungbok Sapphire, which is meant to be made in the vein of Penman Sapphire, none of them look that close. But back in the day, they it was said that uh, American Blue from Private Reserve was about as close as you could get. It's just you can't verify that anymore because the ink has changed with time. Uh, last one from Angie Lee. With everyone and their brother producing ink for sale now, I'd like to hear your views on market oversaturation. Haha. <laughs> uh, when or if will the, the bubble will burst and who the likely survivors of a potential inkpocalypse will be, apart from the obvious suspects like Diamine and Sailor. By the way, for listeners, uh, I think we've come up with several handles that we're not going to be using. Inkpocalypse, uh, incantation, and incandescent. If those aren't already in use... Copyright. <laughs> but what do you think? I, I mean, obviously, like these, these companies that make pens as well are very insulated. I don't know that Diamine would survive an inkpocalypse. Because I just don't think their inks are that very that well behaved as a whole. I think there's too much pigment in them. They're oversaturated. They're monster to clean out of a pen. Have you tried cleaning a diamine ink out of a pen? Oh my gosh! If you've left it in your pen for say at, for four weeks or more than four weeks, it is impossible to get out. I've tried to get Majestic Blue out of a pen, and it it was just I took it apart. I ultrasonicked the bits and I never ultrasonic bits, right? I did that, nothing got it out. I think um, the sort of market crash that you're talking about is of such a scale that only the companies that also make pens so they have something else to fall back on would really survive. Correct. Because, because Diamine is such a huge manufacturer that if it went down, at that point, I think most of the small boutique brands would already be have hmm. vanished. Yep. Um, but I actually think that Diamine would more likely survive, as would like Jacoban, um, because they produce inks that have very different qualities and different ranges. Um, I think they're well insulated. In, yeah. In that mm. they, could, they can cut off colors that don't work, but I think they have enough that do. I think they could both do to... Um, trim do down. so yeah exactly they, slim yeah. down their offerings a little yeah, bit and i think that would also apply for robert oster agreed well. but i also think that robert oster has enough catalog that he could you know remove a couple of inks maybe that um but companies you know like lummy like gruff and papa castell um they will definitely survive okay uh next i had a conversation with anachiki in candidora about her thoughts on inks unlike you know, the three of us, she collects inks very actively um, and she's tried a lot more of these newer inks that we haven't had a chance to experience. So um, here's her thoughts on the topic. Hi, this is Diana. I'm here online with Anna Chiki. Welcome back, Anna. Hi, thank you. I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast, bringing in your incredible perspective and experience especially for this episode, uh, which is a return to inks and the world of inks, what's happened in inks in the last two years since we released our Inks 101 episode. Everything's sort of taken off. So many new brands have come onto the market. So many more people have become more involved. We have gotten international access into so many more brands now. 
it's like the world just opened up and it can be a little bit overwhelming. It certainly was for me over the last two years. And unfortunately, this influx of new brands came just at the time when I've basically reached the limits of my storage space using um, <laughs> these boxes just to hold all my Kobe inks. And you know how many Kobe inks there are. There, there are oh, almost yeah. 100. So, exactly. um, <laughs> so I found myself really slowing down in the acquisition of new inks just as I was trying to manage um, the storage situation. But I know that just looking at your Instagram that you've still been trying out a lot of these new brands and I really want to get your perspective on what's been happening, what's fresh, what's new, what are the trends that you've noticed, um, what's been keeping you excited? So basically... Um, there's a lot going on in the world of ink. Um, the Japanese are calling right now uh, the ink numa phase, which is like the the lake of ink or the sea of ink. I don't speak Japanese, so I can't remember which is which. But um, basically, we're swimming in an ocean of ink at the moment. There's uh, so many brands being born every six months, basically. And all the old players are trying to figure out this new market. So it's a bit of a, an interesting time I think mm -hmm. and um, if you're an ink lover like like we are well then we're in luck because we can just pick and choose what we want to partake in or not or uh, decide to uh, share some of the ink we already have to get some new so basically we last time we spoke I think it was everybody was still talking about sheen and shimmer yes. and uh, and everything but he wanted everything to Sparkle. The, sh the sheen thing came on because we kind of rediscovered uh, Parker Penman Sapphire. And then everybody went a little bit crazy and increased and increased and increased. But it smears. And um, that kind of killed off the buzz. And the shimmer went so crazy that some people started putting any kind of shimmer. And it clogged some pens, which also killed the shimmer. Um, so I think people now want safer inks in a certain mm -hmm. way. And they want uh, inks that can have some, some, something magic, something special, but without blocking their pens. So that's basically how I think we ended up having the double shader trend, which goes hand in hand with the pastel trend. But I, I consider these two a little bit different because if you take the, the Sailor 100, and you look at 162, which was the bestseller of those 100 lines, it sold out because it, it surprised everybody with the double shading, which means basically that you have one main color and then two subsequent colors. And if you dilute it with a little bit of water, it's even more of the second colors. If you let it, if you pour a lot of the ink on something like Tomori River, you'll get more and more of the different colors. And so it creates depth. And this is true for 162, but it's, uh, sorry, 123 is the bestseller. 162 is my favorite. Sorry, I keep mixing those up. So 123 was the bestseller, which is a kind of gray. 162 is similar, but it's the light green. But then you, if you take 462, which is darker, not pastel, you still get the double uh, shading going on. So to me, the double shading is a trend on its own, which was followed by Vinta, which was followed by Troublemaker as well. Uh, Troublemaker really excelled at this. Uh, Vinda is really surprising us with these two. But then you have the pastels, and the pastels are much tougher. The pastels are basically 
something that started off with Chinese schoolgirls loving to have light pink inks and, you know, Japanese schoolgirls wanting Sakura colored inks, super light, super pink that most people didn't want. And then making it lighter so that when you color with it or you go a little bit in depth with it or you add two, you know, two dots of shimmer with it, it looks magical. Then came in the light blue, the light, the sherbet collection by Sailor, the Vinta Julio and Vinta Julia light pastel pink and pastel blues. And I thought I would hate those, but I love Vinta Julio. I can't, I mean, I can't lie. I put it all over my Inktober last year. It's terribly beautiful. Um, you get things like mermaid, which in a broad gold nib is illegible, but you put it in a finer nib. And it's actually a very beautiful, light, sea-like green. So this is something that I've been meaning to get some sort of insight from you because I haven't tried a lot of these pastel and light shading or double shading colours in person. Mostly I've seen them as swabs. And it's very difficult to tell from a swab whether an ink will be legible if you put it in a fine nib. Um, And I suspect... Well, my theory is that a lot of these new inks, they've been driven or they're being sold via swatches and not so much through writing samples. So people are buying them to show them off as swatches and using them very little in actual writing. So I was wondering, um, have you found many of them to be actually practical for writing or are they more beautiful as splashes on paper? Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm completely guilty of being one of those who <laughs> splash ink all over the page because, well, it's fun. Um, yes. But seriously, though, um, so what surprised me a little bit at this trend at the beginning is that the first people selling these, uh, not selling, but like putting these inks on the Internet are Koreans, Japanese and Chinese. So I, I follow a lot of uh, Instagrammers who are essentially people who love ink, but they're in Korea or China or Japan. Mm-hmm. So half of the time, I don't know what they're writing on the on their on their pictures, but I I I find them via the hashtags that they use. Yes. And what was surprising of the pastel inks is that they were the ones using them. Some of the pastels are actually very surprising, and that's how the trend came to be. Because if they were completely illegible, those people would not be using them simply because they tend to just. Like their idea of swatching very often is just scribbling on a page. You know, they're like those Japanese scribbles mm-hmm. that you see on the samplers, Foriro, Shizuku, and all those kind of things. And those were legible. Last week, I started to use Tomo and Lim's uh, First Contact Verma uh, Tourmaline, which is a very light pink with a ton of gold shimmer that darkens the ink, but it's actually well saturated pink. So it's absolutely legible. And that's very surprising. Now, the problem is, or the, the risk is that because this caught on and people in the West started being interested in it, and we use double broads, and we have people who look for these inks for art and things like that, at some point, these inks started to go into the not legible side of the uh, of the line simply because they are just simply selling to sell. So Vinta Julio, for instance, is not legible. Mermaid is legible depending on the nib, but it's not a it's not an ink that will be legible in broad nibs and not legible in fine nibs. It's much trickier. This this is actually a very difficult trend because you generally need to try it in a lot of nibs to figure out if it's legible or not. 
Um, I was really shocked because I got mermaid uh, by Vinta at the at San Francisco Pen Show last year. So essentially, I looked at a card. I saw that the swab was pretty. I saw that the writing sample looked legible. I bought it in less than five seconds because they were selling out those Vinta inks in a night in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, when I got home, I put it in my double broad old nib pen, and I couldn't read anything. And I looked like an idiot at work because I couldn't read what I was writing, and I had to change pens. Uh, and luckily, I had a backup. So basically, I wrote in pink all day because my backup was a pink. So they are very difficult. They, I'm not going to lie about that. I use most of them for art. They excel more when you water wash them, actually, than even straight out of the pen for art. I, I know, for instance, that uh, some people like yellows or other inks that are not known for being legible for art, but they would just put it straight onto the page. If you just do that with uh, with Julio Vinta, you're not getting half of what your money worth on that page because what makes it really beautiful is when you add a few drops of water and you dilute it. It's a little bit like the like some alcoholic drink, you know, some alcohols where if you just straight, put them straight out of the bottle, they're awful. You need to add a splash of water and that's when they become good. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of anise alcohols are like that. Well, pastel inks are the equivalent in the ink world of those. They, they need water. Um, what you're describing, it kind of reminds me of playing with watercolors, where adding more water to the pigment is what creates things like granulation and colors blending with one another and all the pretty effects that you really want from watercolors. But something else that you mentioned is, I think, a really interesting point, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're describing in terms of pastels and the double shading colors, especially the lighter ones, is that the trend is started off um, by one group of people. And at the beginning, it's fairly practical and it's meant to be used in everyday circumstances for writing and so on. But then the trend gets taken up and pushed further and further and further and taken to extremes, you know, extremes of Uh, light colors and um, shading. And that's Mm -hmm. when you get so much experimentation that people come up to the limitations of the inks. And that's when it becomes unusable or people have to use it in different circumstances, not just for writing. And what I think is really interesting, if that is correct, is that that is exactly what also happened with sheening and glitter. Because if you look at the start exactly. of those trends, um, so for example, Emerald of Shavor, that was perfectly usable. It really did not clog as far as I could um, see. Um, I've used it in many different types of pens. It washed out fairly easily. Um, but it was only as people and more and more brands got onto the trend and kept pushing it to make it more sheeny and more glittery um, to stand out from the rest of the crowd that you run up against this barrier. You know, you get inks that are so sheety that it becomes unusable and it starts clogging feeds, it starts ruining pens, it starts becoming impractical to use on any surface that you intend to actually revisit, any paper that you actually intend to look at again um, after you photograph the beautiful (laughs) ink test. And that's when people start having negative experiences and there's a backlash and that propels 
people onto whatever the new trend is. And so there are these waves of adoption and then reaching people's end of their uh, patience with these trends. Yeah, but at the same time, I think it's also there's peaks of uh, extreme and then toning down. Um, For instance, uh, I tend to say, for instance, that organic studios nitrogen is a technical ink. Um, To me, it's an excellent ink in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. Somebody who's either an artist or somebody like me who will choose the pen and the paper based on the ink, not the other way around. Because your average ink pen lover mm-hmm. will choose a pen, then yes. choose the ink. That would be a massive mistake with something like Organic Studios. You need to really be precise. You need to you have, use a piston that you can keep primed. So a demonstrator piston, ideally not an expensive pen, something you control the flow with very easily. Um, you need to use certain types of paper. And for art, if you're an artist and you use a fixation product afterwards, outstanding. But it's like any tool, you need to know what you're doing with it. You know, when I hear about newbies going in and buying it, I feel like telling them, oh, my God, be careful. <laughs> you know, you're using something that's not easy. Um, Shimmer was the same. And now what I love is that now that the, the, the peak of alert of technical products has gone down because everybody was fed up because not everybody is going to be an artist at home. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. That's not the reality. Um, you have people playing with ink and adding shimmer, but in an intelligent way. You have people adding sheen, but not really. You know, there's people like KWZ who did not release sheen when it was a trend. They took their sweet time. They did their job as chemists because, let's face it, that's what KWZ is. It's inks by chemists for chemists. So they actually took their time, experimented, tested, and produced a non-smearing sheening ink, which to me is going to kill every single blue sheening ink that smears. What ink is that? Um, that's KWZ sheen machine. Okay. What's in? I haven't. I haven't had the chance to play with it much. I've tried it out of somebody's pen, but I haven't had my own sample yet because it's blue. And well, you know me and blue inks. I don't. I don't use them enough to get a bottle of it. But um, I was surprised by seeing friends who use it on their hobonichi, and it's not smearing. Okay, it's, it's that's the amazing. Same. It's like it's like the left handers seen dream you know you 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 can it once it's dry it's dry and it stays put and i think that was very smart on their behalf some people criticize them for being you know late to the parade or to just be followers or like even late adopters of this trend but to me i think it was very a very intelligent move they let people forget about the bad behavior but not completely and then they release something that is much better it seems beautifully it is a blue with red sheen, so people often complain because all blues sheen red, because that's part of the dye that makes it sheen red. But, you know, this one's actually fixated. Um, in a similar way, you have uh, brands who are using shimmer in a more intelligent way. So, for instance, there's this Australian brand, I'm trying to remember their name, uh, Van something, Van Deeks, Van... Van Demons. Van Demons. Um, there is one of their inks that I'm looking forward to ordering very soon because it's uh, it's a dark grayish blue uh, grayish black, but it has three colors of shimmer in it. 
And I don't think it locks hands because the, the people I've seen using it are Asians who are not very, you know, who are very careful with what they put in their pens. And I, you know, I haven't heard about anybody complaining. Also, perhaps because they're small. Yeah, they, it, things like that are very cool. You have uh, Tomo and Lim or Vinta playing with Shimmer. They add the super fine. So Vinta, what they did with Julio is a pastel egg, sure, but they added this tiny, the tiniest, finest, finest uh, shimmer I've seen around. So it just gives you a twinkle. It doesn't have that full-on metallic thing that some. Um, so I'm I'm going to be honest. I mean, the Diatomentis shimmer inks had so much shimmer in them that they would change completely the color of the ink. And uh, those, the sh- I, I don't know if the shimmer was too dense or if it was too too thick, but it actually, that that was a very problematic series of inks. Um, Vinta is the opposite. It doesn't give you any problems. The only problem you might have is it's too light. But the shimmer, which is you know the the, the point where uh, where I'm concentrating on this at this moment, is not problematic at all because it's it's well you know it's it's in good quantities. It's it's well behaved and. And that's nice. So I think that now we have a resurgence of more intelligently used shimmer. And that's going to be interesting. You have people like uh, Pannonia in Hungary, who's also trying to play with it. And um, yeah, I think there's going to be very interesting things coming out. Um, Another thing that was kind of a trend for artists, but never took off, and I'm expecting to take off this year, is uh, pigment inks. Because uh, historically, we all know about Platinum's uh, Carbon Black, of which I became a major fan last year when I actually started using it for October. And I, I basically in one month refilled my pen four or five times and fell in love with it. But one of the reasons also why I went into it is because after being in Taiwan and discovering Kala inks, I basically decided to give Pigment inks another chance. And Kala Inks, which is a small Taiwanese brand, K-A-L-A Inc. I don't think they have an Instagram account, even though I check regularly and I and I try to get uh, to find it. Yeah, I found them at um, Kylie's in Taiwan, but you can also find them at Nemo's. And uh, now in the U.S., there is, um, oh, my God, what's their name? I just forgot their name. Ah, um, that brand that store in the u.s that sells only Planets? japanese mostly japanese oh. no no japanese stuff um oh it will come to me jet i'm pens. sorry i just forgot jet pens thank you so jet pens carries it in the u.s Kala inks has three lines one is uh abstraction the other one is uh i think it's supposed to be gemstones and the third one is an odd to the 80s so it's just fluorescent eggs now the the one that uh, that jet pens has is abstraction. So you have very pretty uh, muted colors like uh, Mongolian sandstorm, which is a muted purple, and uh, very grayish kind of tones. They're all pigment inks. All of color inks are pigment inks, and they are beautiful. And then the gemstones. It's um, the winner for me is spectrolite, which is basically. In, um, inspired by laboratory kind of gemstone. So it's like a blue-black, kind of grayish-blue-black with a red sheen and it's pigment. So once it's on the page, it will not move. And um, these are beautiful. 
They are absolutely well behaved. I've taken them to work. I've put, put them, I even put one in a safari and it wrote beautifully. It was actually kind of wet. And it's pigmented. It's not hard to maintain, contrary to what most people think. At least these are not. And yeah, they're really great. That's really impressive. Yeah. And so that's the first trend that's going to start kicking off from Taiwan that we haven't seen yet, but I'm expecting. And um, the next one, which is like ridiculously high in Taiwan, but in, I'm not sure if it's going to pick up or not, but I would like to keep an eye on, is the fluorescent ink thing. So basically, color inks made a nod to the 80s. Uh, Just Spirit, which is one of my favorite stores for inks. They're like the Van Ness of the, of the East. Uh, Just Spirit in Taiwan, they ship everywhere worldwide. Their shipping rates are cool. J-U-S-P-I-R-I-T. So, um, so they create the inks or they, they're just a retailer? So a little bit of both. Um, so Spirit is an ink stationery store based in Taipei, which was created by a, a thing who used to be a chemist and is so deep in the ink hobby that she actually is. You know the Colorverse first line of inks? You know they have these little swap cards that they would put on the website? Well, she owns them. She has them at home now because I think, she, yeah, she's insane. She's, she's, she's probably an even bigger ink collector than anybody knows. She just doesn't put them on FPC. So she opened shop um, not like about a year and a half ago or two years ago. And uh, she's super well known in Taiwan and probably around Taiwan. But I discovered her because when I was in Taipei, a Singaporean Taiwanese friend recommended her. And since then, I've ordered from her my Lennon toolbar inks. I've ordered a bunch of stuff from her. She carries really difficult inks like uh, the Ink Institute inks from Taipei, who are super rare. Um, she she can find Bungu box out of Japan. Um, and she, she ships worldwide, and she's very good at finding, you know, real gems in the ink world. She also started making her own inks because she's a chemist. Now, her first line of inks are what? Fluorescent inks. Okay. Because that's how big the trend is in Taiwan. It's insane. So I'm hoping or that this will catch on. And I think that's partly why. Tomo and Limbs is doing uh, UV light inks. Yes, I've seen those. And UV mm-hmm. light inks that also are legible, not under UV. So under different circumstances, exactly. you can still see them. So unlike White Ghost, which is invisible unless you put it under a UV light. Exactly. Or, or, or Whiteness of the Whale, which is the same. So basically, um, the Tomo and Limbs UV inks are playing off the pastel trend. Because if your ink is pastel and it has the UV component, then obviously you can read it without, you know, the lamp. But it has this magic effect to it. Now, if you go all the way into, um, if you go all the way into the fluorescent inks, like the 80s neons and things like that, you also get something kind of magical under black light. But it's also like, uh, you know, it, the ink just kind of pops, the color of the ink pops, and that's pretty nice. Um, Monteverde, I, I suspect that they're playing around with that as well, um, because for uh, the Ink 52, Inktober 52 last week, I did a snake, 
And the ink I used was Keen Lime from the Sweet Lime line of uh, Monteverde. And uh, Key Lime Pie is a rather neon green ink. And these are not like the highlighter inks that we had in the past, which are kind of flat. These are denser inks. They are much thicker. Usually they're pigmented inks. So they, they, you know, they, they lay flat on the page, but the ink color just pops. And if you add black light, then it's just, it's just a party on the page. Yeah, I, I think this, this might pick up. What I'm thinking, as you mentioned these inks with unique properties, is that they're really very practical and practical for everyday use. So neons, um, you know, people who, students, for example, use neons as highlighters, as underlining pens, as just marking pens, and pigment inks are always demanded um, and asked for, especially for people who work in laboratory situations, artists as well. So if these inks take off and become more widely known and widely used, then this expands the potential usership of fountain pens is what I'm gathering from it. You know, it's much more easy to get students on board if they're attracted by neon inks and well as all these colorful inks. It's easier to get artists to use fountain pens if the inks that they're using are in different colors and won't smear if you're putting an ink wash over them. Fountain pens can be just as adaptable to different circumstances as, you know, a ballpoint or a pencil. It's not just for journaling or very controlled environments. There's a ink for every situation. Yeah, exactly. I think that you're right. The, so artists and, and students are big consumers of ink products, and they are drivers for change. Conrad, who is the creator of KWZ, started making iron gall inks because he needed to have uh, inks for his lab that were different colors so he could color code his work, just as a student will color code his own work. And that's how permanence with color started coming about. And then the document inks by Dietramentis were born, and that's pretty much what made Dietramentis so famous. There's the part where they had a lot of themed inks, um, but what they're most remembered for is their document inks. Um, similarly, it, students started the pastel trend in the West by uh, switching from the highlighters that were super bright to those pastel colored um, highlighters. So that's where I'm old because I can never remember the brand of the 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 super when I was at high super fashionable one. When I was in high school, I had a set of. Um, was it 10 or 12? I think they were Uniball gel pens with pastel inks. Yeah, They were exactly, extremely popular. Yeah, about 15, exactly. 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we're the same age because I did the same. <laughs> yes. And um, I remember that I, 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 I jumped into the bandwagon for them very quickly and then dropped out of it very quickly too because I consumed gel pens too fast. And so I was like, this is too expensive. Give me back my fountain pens. And um, that's how I, I ended up looking for a lot of past, of, of uh, bright uh, fountain pen inks that will make me 20 years into this hobby. Oh, my God. Oh. So anyway, um, about that, uh, going back to the topic. So, yeah, pastel highlighters. Um, got them used to using pastel colors in their notes because they're less aggressive than the fluorescent ones. 
And so I think that being used to having a certain li- a number of products makes them ask for more. And that's why it makes a lot of sense to give them more in terms of pigmenting. Because the problem with the, the iron gall is that they turn too dark at some point. And so people kept asking me, at least, for colorful inks that were permanent. And since I don't work in a lab, I'm, I'm very bad at this. But obviously, the document inks can be mixed. But there's only so much ink mixing one may do with them because they're still fairly dark and they're fairly still fairly straightforward in terms of colors, even though they have that yellow uh, cyan and magenta and yellow, um, and the white that helps mix up. But um, I think that in terms of artists, there's also the fact that there was a huge trend in the past two years for uh, mixing kits. And um, those mixing kits also uh, make people want to have more options. It's nice to have mixing inks, but there's only so much you can do with them. You, most of the mixing inks require a lot of work, a lot of experience. Um, you need to be testing and doing palettes. And uh, some kits are really well made. I recently tried the Three Oyster one, and I was really fascinated by it because it uh, has a dilution product. It has a good set of variety. It comes with the the uh, the, the eyedropper. It comes with the little uh, tins, the little jars, so you can mix the ink in it and so forth. But there's always a point where the ink is too dark and it's really hard to lighten it. So on one hand, for the artists who want to mix their own inks, which is what an artist would naturally want to do to control the, the color and the shade, they have more options than ever. But for something quick and that's ready on the go, it's also forcing ink makers to push the envelope further and further and further and make better quality products. And that's why I think that the smaller brands like Three Oyster, uh, Tono and Lim, Kala, uh, Colorverse have a real edge and that the traditional ink makers are having a lot of problems keeping up with. And so you see uh, Pelican experimenting with a more saturated ink that stains the barrel of their pink pens. Mm-hmm. Use, and I'm, 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 partly hoping that they're playing with shimmer this year because they changed the cap of the ink of the year. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that means that they added something to the ink. Oh, the gray, um, the, the moonstone. The gray, exactly. The moonstone. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, moonstone. The moonstone has a gray cap. Why does it have a gray cap? I'm, I'm just hoping that they try something new with it. I don't know what they, they did, but we'll see. I hope it's not just a cap for the sake of a cap. <laughs> Do you yeah? think that the the traditional... So you mentioned that the older brands, the established pen and ink brands, are basically playing catch-up. They notice a trend, it's becoming very popular, and they're trying to experiment with having singular products, um, having small collections or just one ink of that example um, and seeing how that works. But do you think that those brands who also make their own pens are in a way disadvantaged because at every stage they have to guarantee or they have to attempt to make all of their inks suitable for all their pens? So the way I look at pen, ink and paper is for pen collectors like myself and Sharon, pen is at the top of that pyramid. You know, it's a it's a pyramid where the, you choose the pen first and then you choose inks that will work with those pens. And then paper is, you know, at the bottom. It has to satisfy all circumstances, whatever the 
paper we use, we would like it to be able to be usable with every ink and with every pen and not have to constantly have to consider what paper we're using just because we're choosing a different pen. Um, but what you're describing is that someone who's really obsessive or really invested and interested in inks is that they choose the ink first and then they consider mm-hmm. what is the instrument or what is the circumstance that I'll be using it with. Um, exactly. but, but I think pen makers, they can't afford to think like that because um, the pen is still their signature product, right? They produce inks as um, an accessory to that pen. So, for example, if Edelstein makes an ink that manages to stain one of their rare in pens, that's a huge problem. But if a you know another company like Vinter made an ink that stained a pen, you can more or less um, relegate that to so you shouldn't use that ink with that pen. You know, it's a it's a bad experience. Avoid it and you move on. But Edelstein, it becomes something that's really terrible for their brand. Exactly. So um, I fully agree. And even um, w- most people don't like noodlers because noodlers stain pens. Noodlers damages some types of pens. I still buy noodler things. I bought three to, in late 2019. I actually found a friend to get me the ones that came at the Commonwealth uh, pen show because I knew that at least one of those inks is on obtainium and the other one is uh, that the, the, the shade would not be the same afterwards because he announced it on his YouTube channel. <laughs> and yes, I watch his YouTube channel. So noodlers still exist, for instance. But who will like noodlers? Somebody like me. It's we're a minority. Um, the reason why we most people think noodlers is out of the ball game is because pan people like like you and Sharon are actually a majority in this hobby um, because well, pens are seen uh, are are more are, are basically the entry point into this hobby. I wouldn't be into inks if I hadn't had a starting point with pens, and you can't do much with a, with with inks if you don't have good fountain pens. So there, there's no denying that. And I do agree that there's more leeway for an ink brand than for a pen brand that's taking out inks. But the pen brands have a lot of difficulties. So on one hand, they're being forced now to have inks. In the past, so at the moment, I have a super rare Waterman ink from somewhere in the earliest 20th century that I'm trying to date. I'm trying to find its history and it's super hard. One of the reasons why it's super hard is that Waterman actually started making ink before Parker and before Schaefer. They were the first fountain pen brand to start making their own ink, but they didn't advertise about it because their business was pen. So they had no pressure to have ink. They just made it because they could, and they did a really good job at it too. Um, there were people like Carter's Ink, and there was people like Stefan doing just ink, and that was perfectly fine. They didn't need to be in that ballgame. Schaefer and Parker changed things a little bit by going into the, the every you know, trying to be the brand of a person. So they would sell them the paper and the pen and the, and the, and the ink and everything, and so they would market everything to them, even the toys, so that the person would be proud to carry all of the products and only that brand. A little bit like the cars and, uh, you know, the, the, the kitchenware where, you know, you'd have KitchenAid and you'd have everything from the fridge 
to the blender, everything gets made. And for some time that died down and nobody really cared. And the ink brands had some room to grow and they did. And now that they grew so much, the historical pen makers who used to have ink are now forced to do things that would, they would have never done in the past. Um, some of them are getting experimental, like Pelican, who throw that one off in the sea and take a risk. And I admire them for it. I really liked uh, last year's ink. Star I can't Ruby. remember. Uh, Rose Quartz. Star Ruby, sorry. Star Ruby. What's wrong with me today? <laughs> um, so Star Ruby, thank you. Um, Star Ruby is actually a very beautiful pink. I love it. I actually put it in one of my uh, whitish Pelicans. It's been a little bit, okay, I'll live with it. I will not die from it because I had fun with the ink. I think it's absolutely stunning. Now, Lamy tried putting shimmer in their vibrant pink ink, and the ink was so dry and so shimmery that it clogged the vibrant pink safari. Lamy is, uh, took a risk in, in 2018, so in 2019 they brought us that copper orange that is neither copper nor very vibrant nor not, not very everything. And I think um, the stores are struggling to get to sell the copper orange, not the copper orange, the bronze. The copper orange is a beautiful one. Bronze is struggling. And that's a pity because there's a middle ground between boring and too experimental. And finding their way takes time. But if you're only releasing one new ink per year, that's not easy. And then you have people like Mont Blanc, with whom I'm very angry this year because they got lazy and they're buying into, they're basically becoming close, they're, they're, they're threading closer and closer to what um, Moleskine does. And I don't like moleskin. Moleskin is like, if you're not a, pen, a paper person, moleskin is like the absolute of paper. Uh, absolute vodka just with a nice, beautiful ad and sends it, sells you a very bad vodka. Moleskin puts really bad paper in their notebook, makes great publicity and sells it at a premium. Same model. Montblanc is starting to make really bad ink mm -hmm. and selling it at a premium. They increased the price of their standard inks, took out good colors, Put in bad colors. Modena red is is, oh, that is almost bad. <laughs> as bad as Lamy red. It is awful, and that orange is almost as bad as bronze orange by Lamy. It is pathetic, and it's more expensive, and it's it's taking you know it's it's taking loyal customers away from the brand because they will not buy that after they used to have cop, you know uh, corn poppy red for less just a few months earlier. Have you had a chance to? test or um, use any of the perfume inks from Montblanc? I have tested them and I was extremely disappointed because making perfumed inks is not new. Um, making perfumed inks is something Jay uh, uh, Herbin, or now just called Herbin, has done since forever. Mm -hmm. My first perfumed inks, I bought them in the 90s. So that's not new. did them for a long time. Diatramentis did them too and... Um, now, at the same time as uh, Montblanc brought out these elixir inks inspired by natural recipes made out of petals, were perfumed with actual in ingredients from the perfume industry, well, um, er um, Jacques Herbin uh, took some of their standard ink colors and also perfumed them. With perfumes that I would like to wear, the Noir Inspiration, I really wish it was an actual perfume. They brought in a candle instead. I, I just want to splash myself with it. It smells of, uh, of uh, like uh, 
like I, I like those kind of manly perfumes that have a little bit of tobacco and musk and uh, and uh, patchouli and uh, that's leather. all of that's in there. Leather, <laughs> like oil and, slick. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like it's like it's a motorcycle uh, jacket you know, or a cigar den. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like no, it's, this one is more like I I I like to I like to drink my Kodak while smoking a cigar mm-hmm. after having eaten caviar. This yes. it's a very elegant masculine masculine but 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 so beautiful that a woman could wear it. You know, it's it's really really beautiful. Um, and the Noir Aspiration is really nice. Now they took Bleu Estrel and did some weird perfumey thing that I didn't like, but it's. It's uh, it's close to the kind of perfumes I wouldn't wear, so that's normal. There's a little bit of everything for everyone. Bleu Inspiration, unfortunately, which is a very good, well-behaved ink, became not so well-behaved when they added the perfume into it. But it's it's quite daring to do this. Now, if you go back to the elixirs, the so the Jacquardin inks are actually interesting colors. Now, the elixir inks, the colors are very flat. They, I was very disappointed by the ink colors. They're original shades, but on any kind of paper, they just kind of sink into the paper and they lay very flat and they don't pop out of the page. And the perfume is nice, but do I really want to pay that level of premium for that? It's no, incredibly expensive. It's more expensive than a, you know, than a regular bottle perfume. Yeah, exactly. I'm boycotting. I've had samples I, because somebody was offering samples. Okay, that's okay. But I would not buy a bottle because I think they're making a joke out of the client. And the worst of the worst was that ladies pink. Oh. I mean, it's 2019. No, 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 no. Call it Marilyn Monroe if you want, but don't call it ladies pink. Don't put a string of pearls on it. And if you're going to do that, at least make an ink that, that has enough dye to make it worth the price. I think they, with that one and um, and uh, the Year of the Pig, they really made a mockery of the client. They put one drop of dye for a liter of dilution fluid and put that in a bottle. You're essentially paying for the bottle and the brand because ink technically is quite cheap, always. It's always cheap to make. That's why That's why it's a good side hustle for 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 pen, for, for pen makers yes. to have because if it compared to the, the the cost of making a pen um you get more income from you know your your margin is much bigger when you make ink but if you are just putting a drop of dye and your ink is illegible and a, a normal pen person cannot read it there is no point and the risk is that, so Montblanc is being Montblanc because they're part of the Richemont, they are part of a luxury brand, so they're going into the marketing techniques of a luxury brand, which will cater for the more sophisticated clients by selling them the luxury products that they're known for and have smaller products that are more accessible for those who just want to show off the brand even though they don't necessarily have the means. The ink, I think, Montblanc is seeing now a little bit as that because there's so many ink collectors. People who will just collect the ink, not buy, never buy a Montblanc. And not, not use them and use not buy, yeah. Exactly. And, not even, and, and who will, are not the same people who will buy a pen from them too. But the problem with that is that you see brands like Twisby and Aurora trying to make phantom pen ink. 
And they are way off their game because Aurora Black and Aurora Blue Black and Aurora Blue are well-known inks that are for the quality. The Blue Black from the new anniversary ink line is a different Blue Black. But I'm concerned that all of these colorful inks might be a bit flat. And the Twisby colors were very flat too. I'm kind of sorry. On one hand, I'm I'm glad that Twisby keeps growing and innovating, but um, in the same way that they pushed the pen market very easily into something new, they are the one pen brand that I recommend for people who like to experiment with ink, because their barrels are demos that don't get stained. They it's nearly impossible. I mean, you need to go to with, you know. With you can't stain them. I mean, it's you can put bleach in them and it still works. So why are they not experimenting? So if you've listened to um, a conversation, my conversation with Sharon and Chuck, we were asked whether we thought that there was too many brands, too many makers in the market now, and it was due for some sort of collapse or um, a reversal. And I think. What we commented on was if that was to happen, a lot of these smaller brands might struggle and it would be the more established companies with very large portfolios that would survive. Would you agree with that? I mean, do you think that these companies who are very specialized in producing, for example, shading inks or uh, fluorescent inks, are they really just on the stage for very brief times? Um, or do you think that they have longevity um, without having to grow in, into becoming an ink brand the size of, say, KWZ or Robert Oster? Well, I think, I, so I do agree that there are a lot of, too many brands right now. And um, a friend of mine has been, um, so I'm, I'm actually going to name him, um, a, a friend of mine whose name starts with a D and ends with an L and that a lot of people know in the community um, has been talking about the the ink bubble go, going to burst at any time. And uh, But he started talking about that two years ago. And it just keeps growing. Um, and I think that it, what's going to be surprising is that it's not a matter of establishment that's going to make or break the brand. It's going to be more a matter of, or, or a size. It's going to be more a matter of how the, the business is run and how the community is willing to support them. Why do, what do I mean by that? Um, I think that if you... If you you know the, you, you guys were talking about that analogy that you don't want to go to the restaurant that has too many dishes you want to go to the smaller restaurant that specializes in you know roasted chicken noodles ramen just one thing and does that super well somebody like Kala Inc if they manage to grow and continue with just with what they do or somebody like KWZ who knows really well what they're doing and are very specialized they will probably be here to stay. Somebody like Robert Oster, who is sometimes on the fine line because he makes bestsellers, but he has way too many blues and he has some inks that are way too dry and he churns out a new ink every week. He might have to cut down 
because there will be a moment where people will be like, yes, your website is beautiful. I love your inks, but I don't really need a new pack of ink every time. And it's a bit expensive for me because I live abroad. Brands like Monteverde, for instance, who are actually, or, or Herbin, who are very well established, but have consistently innovated whilst remaining small, to put it in some way, those are the ones who will probably stay for a very, very long time. Brands like Twisby making inks or Aurora making inks or Montblanc doing I don't know what at some point will have to cut their losses because people will, why would I buy a boring green like 20 others when I can buy a very beautiful luminous green? If you look at Carondash, they're not selling their new inks. We're all, we're hunting the old ones, but we don't want the new ones. The new ones are expensive and Okay, they're not bad, but mm-hmm. are they exciting? No, mm-hmm. they're not. I foresee, well, here's a scenario. Um, you can tell me if you think it's likely or possible, is a lot of these smaller brands, they come up with the innovations and the established players, they, they're they late adopters and maybe they make some mistakes to begin with, but eventually they will succeed in incorporating i think those innovations so um platinum sailor already make pigment inks it would be i think fairly easy for them to come out with a line of pigment inks in different colors um, and just add it to their own portfolio and if they do that then they absorb that market share and make those smaller companies obsolescent so what I'm trying to understand is why is it that these companies are so new? Is it a new phenomenon or is it because new companies have always, you know, arisen in the past, but they just don't survive very long. They come and they go and then those innovations, they get, um, they use those little companies to test out what's new and to make it popular in the, um, the substrata, you know, among the real ink fans and they become the test subjects really. (laughs) you know, um, working out what works, what doesn't, what is chemically possible and what isn't. And then once it's tried and tested, you know, a company like Montblanc, like um, Platinum and Sailor, they can come in and they can come out with a whole range and just take over that entire market. Mm, I'm not saying that that's necessarily what would happen, but I can definitely see that as one possibility. And because they're so large and they can afford to make mistakes, I think, you know, a company like Sailor could really do it on a scale to wipe out those smaller makers. So the thing is, yes and no, it's a little more complicated. Um, let me start with the European and then go to the Asian because it's completely, I cannot compare Sailor to a Mont Blanc. It's impossible. The simple reason is that Sailor has its own mixologist in-house and they were smart. They, they, the, the most brilliant mixologist in the world works from, for Sailor. So they're a little bit out of the equation that I'm going to start with. Montblanc outsources their ink. The ink maker for Montblanc is not in-house. And Montblanc is not so good with innovation. Montblanc, you know the, the so-called safety pen that is the Bohème? Oh, yes. They didn't make it in-house. They're, there they was a cheap brand of Saipen in Europe. No, no, but they, but uh, but but to make that, it wasn't an in-house innovation. 
what they what happened is that there is the this European brand called Saipen who used to make a pen with that mechanism. They bought it and they in-house the process. But that's not innovation per se. It's just you buy a technology and you you know you make it luxury. I don't see any small brand selling their craftsmanship to Mont Blanc. And I've been asked a number of times, why is the ink, uh, the, the, the ink formulation and uh, the whole ink sector so opaque? And it's not completely opaque. It's just that nobody wants somebody like Mont Blanc or Pelican buying into what they're doing. Lamy, Pelican, Mont Blanc, they need to figure it out in-house or hire the best mixologists to do it. But the mixologists who are not selling their own thing are usually brands that make other things who happen to be into the chemistry sector and thus also make fountain pinnings for these brands. Their competitors in Europe are Diamine, who are ink makers, full-on ink makers, who survived all of the generations of British ink makers that disappeared because there were a ton of British ink makers. To me, this isn't even the first peak of ink. This is the second wave of peak of ink because I try to collect some vintage inks. The amount of vintage ink that was made, there were so many brands in the first half of the 20th century. It's almost a joke. It's impossible to collect them all because there was too many. Spain had so many brands that every city had its own ink maker. It's, it's just something completely different. Now, in today's world, in Europe, KWZ is not going to disappear because they are a sound business model. They know what they're doing. They overextended themselves perhaps a little bit with all the inks that they're making for all of those shows and the events. But those, those events, they really knock it out of the park every time. And that keeps them afloat because it, it, their reputation is intact. They are innovating in a certain way. And when they do something, they do it really well. That, that sheen machine was a surprise to me. I was expecting it to be boring. It was not. When you go to Asia, it's completely different. Um, oh, and I'm not even going into North America because North America you have, it's easy. North America you have one major ink brand that is historical, that is Noodler's, and until, as long as Nathan Tardif is there, he will have fans, and he will have, um, he sells to people that we don't see. He sells to, to like, the IT manufacturers in China who need something that is not visible, unless you splash it into black light. So we're not the market for that UV light. The guys in China and in Taiwan making processors are so he has, he will survive because he's a little bit like the diamine of the Americas. He has such a broad palette of clients that we do not see on top of the fans, on top of everything he's innovating with all the time. So they are a part and everybody else who is small is either a well-anchored company who is also doing pens like Monteverde, which is the perhaps the only company I know is better known for its inks than for its pens. And good for them. Good for them. They make really amazing inks. So cool. Okay, that's their thing. If they don't survive for, for the inks, they will survive for the pens, and they keep improving the pens, and then back and forth, and that will keep them stable. Then you have smaller brands. Those will come and go, and whatever. Their boutique, they will survive as long as they manage to sell something new, and yes, they will die with the trends if they don't keep innovating. 
In Asia, it's completely different, though. Asia is the biggest ink market in the world. It's also the biggest pen market in the world, you, even though the U.S. is growing, and that's what Sailor is doing so many exclusives um, in, the, in North America. But you have Sailor, who is a giant, but they couldn't figure out pigment inks. Their, their pigment inks were extremely dry and almost unusable. I don't know a single person who is an ink lover who has actually enjoyed them because though they were miserable, they were nice. I use pigment the, black. The Thoria. Oh, the Storia. You, They're not good. No. The pigment black ink. Okay. But is it better than platinum carbon black? Um, it doesn't perform as well as platinum black, but I like the look of it better. It looks pretty, yes, but it's, it's not as... Uh, but when you look for pigment ink as opposed to a good normal black ink, you want permanent. You want it to stick to that page, not much. The, the only ones who do that are perhaps Storia, and I'm saying perhaps, but they are so dry that, oh my God, there's, it's, it's, it's like using Hisoku, but for art, it's torture. Um, so no, 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 no. Um, they can't do everything. They're really good at, at innovating. They are really good at making colors that are poetic, but they, they will, it will take them time to compete on certain areas. And platinum is very slow to bring inks out, which I've always been a little bit perplexed. But at the same time, if they this, if the reason why they're doing it is because they focus on the pens and they innovate very slowly, even on pens, well, they're not going to eat up anybody anytime soon. So that's not the priority. Um, Pilot killed it with Eroshizuku, but then they called it a day. And what's amazing about the smaller brands in in Asia is that they are being born where you have the biggest ink community. And they are born out of the love of ink. They are born out of people who have actually, uh, who are actually business savvy. Robert Oster is brilliant, not just as a mixologist. He's brilliant because he's a businessman. He knows what he's doing. He understands marketing. He understands finance. He understands logistics. That's why Robert Oster is amazing. Robert Oster is is a man who knows what he's doing. And he, he's doing it well. And um, Vinta is and the Troublemaker are very small. They're very young. But they have the support of the Fountain Pen Network Philippines. I mean, this is a country who has its own Fountain Pen Network. Oh, it's massive. That says a lot. It's massive. It's huge. And even though Troublemakers is three guys, Super young, they do not have the business savvy of a Robert Oster. They are, they 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 are actually victims of their success. They are too successful for their own good. They can't ship or even produce the product on time. Um, they will have a good. They will have to learn, or they will not survive. But and so I, those are the ones where I agree that there is a, a very big risk that they will be eaten up. But they will not be eaten up necessarily by the giants. They will be eaten up potentially by the other small ink brand maker who knows what they're doing. I would be more scared mm-hmm. by a Robert Roster than by a sailor right now. That's so interesting. Because, hmm. yeah, yeah. Pen BBS is also fascinating. We didn't know about them until recently in the, you know, out here in the non-Chinese parts of yes. the, non-Chinese king parts of the world. But they've been because, making inks for several years now. Yeah, I think they started in 2012, and their inks used to be terrible, and they're getting better and better and better and better. The difficulty they have is that t- bring, taking ink, any kind of fluid out of China is super difficult, 
but if they manage to make ink elsewhere, they'd kill the entire market in a second. If they make really good ink, they market it super well. They have an entire Chinese market. They're, the Americans are falling in love with it, and the Europeans are too. How would you, um, what characterizes the PMBBS inks? Because I haven't seen any of them in person, only some swatches. Oh, they are, I would say they're poetic. They are subtle. They have that, they're kind of French formulations, so they're a little bit more liquidy. They have less of that uh, thick texture that we like in Sailor or in a Jacardin or a Monteverde. But they, they, the colors are really subtle. They're, they're, it's, it's really a matter of that hue that will be just gently different from another shade, you know, another color in the same shade family or in the same color family. And um, they are usually legible. They usually are very well behaved. Those that have shimmer are well dosed these days. Anything from 2018 forward is usually very well behaved and very interesting. Something like the, so Shanghai, which is PEM BBS uh, 111, surprised me. They encapsulated Shanghai in a bottle. Oh, it's, uh, really? all, yeah, it's, um, I should send you a sample. Let me Google so this. It's, uh, it's, um, it's like a reddish orange, almost neon, like very bright, and it has gold shimmer. But it has so much of neonness and brightness and red and gold that it has, you know, that, oh, that very, I see. it has that kind of, it, it's like, it's fun. Yeah. It's very gold. So, you know, you know, the reputation of Shanghai. <laughs> yes. So there you go. It has red. So that majesticness, that elegance that Shanghai has. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's a little bit like a, like a, a party in a bottle. It's orange. You know, when you shake it, you're, you're kind of like, oh, I'm ready to go out, to go out into the neon lights and, uh, you know, go into the bund and uh, have some cocktails looking at Pudong. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So basically, I had never seen something that reminded me so much of Shanghai than that one bottle of ink. And that sums up well what they do. They take an idea... And they put it in a bottle, but they do it well. And they make, I don't know how many releases they do per season. It's, it, it, if you don't get them fast, you're, you're, I missed out on, um, on uh, La Liberté. Uh, this, uh, there's this thing that came out last, uh, like not last fall, but the fall before, 2018 fall. When I saw it, I, I nearly cried because I couldn't get my hands on it. Yeah, they're terrible. They're 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 dangerous. So if they if somebody from NBBS decides to start making ink not in China to be able to sell it internationally, that yes, that will kill all the small ink makers because they have the flexibility of a small ink maker, the innovation, but they 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 just they just know what they're doing a lot better than a lot. Other ones, just like Robert Oster knows what he's doing when he when he's you know playing around with his business model. Um, not many people know how to do that. The Taiwanese are surprising. The Taiwanese do that rather well. They have the whole community behind them. Yeah, I would keep an eye on Taiwan. Taiwan is actually a, um, a Fude fan. Jacob said it well. He lives in Tokyo. He lives in Japan, and where he goes to get the cutting edge of ink is Taiwan. Is Taiwan. Yeah, this is it's making me um, excited about ink again. 
Um, I'm especially interested about to see what PanBBS will be doing in the future because they've had um, over a decade, I think, now to build up some experience. And I think they started out slow, but now they're doing things at scale. They're selling internationally through Etsy and eBay. Um, they're becoming quite established and developed a good reputation, I think, overseas now. I would not be surprised if they start selling their inks, um, whether it's through Etsy or eBay, through their established, um, their existing web stores. I'd be really excited if that was to happen. What are you looking forward to just in the near future? Um, I'm looking forward to, to having more of these inks that have interesting behaviors when you play with them because um, they got me into art. Um, being able to water wash a a troublemaker's petrichor, um, or petrichor, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that, um, really got me into making art last autumn. Um, I want to see more pigment inks with more diversity of color. Now that I have the three oysters, uh, my color set, I don't want any more mixable inks. I want more interesting shades that are legible. Please make them legible. Um, and that are easily accessible online. Because Pen BBS, I can find them at PenS. I can find them at the Sakura Pen Gallery, by the way, in Belgium, which to me is a, a symbol of high quality. But I can't find them on their Etsy page. And they're still focusing mostly on the Chinese market. So I really hope they grow. And I hope I see Kala Inc. and Tono and Lim and Three Oysters everywhere in the world because those are probably my, my three favorite brands of 2019 that I want to see grow. Vinta surprised me a lot, but I don't want them to grow too fast. Neither troublemaker. I want them to learn their craft better before they grow. Three Oyster was born out of a uh, chemist and somebody who owns a shop in Taiwan. Uh, no, in Taiwan, in South Korea, sorry, Korea, in South. Yes. And, and, uh, and because there's the business side and the chemistry side, they've grown, grown slowly, gently, but very well. The products are excellent, and I'm a very big fan of them, and I just wish them all the success in the world. I want to see them in Europe because they're not present here yet, and I wish they were. Tono and Lim are Japanese and South Korean. So Tono is, I think, one of the people behind some of the most collectible inks in Japan, but I might be wrong. I'm, I'm suspecting that uh, it's either Kingdom Note or Bungo Box, so idea people. So he's a mixologist for our other brands as well. No, 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 no. He's not a mixologist. He's an idea. He has the idea of the ah. color. Lim is a mixologist. Okay. So, so Lim's was a brand in South Korea a few years ago, and they never managed to get out of South Korea. So Tono is the the business side, and the, oh, this would be fun. Let's do this. And Linz is the mixologist who knows what he's doing and making really high-quality products behind it. And that partnership is insanely smart. And they are giving Colorverse a run for their money. Now, Colorverse is getting to the point where they're saturating. They're making things that look very similar to what they've already done. So I think that Tono, Tono and Lim are going to just grow, and I want them to grow because I like what I've seen. Um, I only have one so far, but I know that's not going to be the only one I will have by the end of the year. I got two of the pastels recently, um, Protect You and Forgetting You. I found them a little bit dry. 
I'm not mm-hmm. sure if um, you experienced the same thing. Um, I put it on a those triple tail, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm very interested in what they do. Um, the only troublemaker I've tried is Foxglove, and that was very well behaved. Um, I've tried it in a fountain pen and also on a just a nib, a steel calligraphy nib. Okay. You've put some new brands in my mind that I will definitely have to go and search out and see what I can find. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Um, I feel like I've learned so much every time I talk to you. And uh, (laughs) I'm really glad that I get you the opportunity to just rattle off everything you can think of about inks, you know, for an hour and a half. Um, I feel like you should definitely do this model of conversation for your YouTube channel because um, I'm sure okay. it's very popular. <laughs> Note taken. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Anna, for being on the NIMP section again. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. I have to catch up, you know, I have to do more research because you've just revealed my ignorance about what's happening in both in Europe and also in Asia. Um, I have to go and try out more inks, find out what's happening in terms of pigments um, and maybe create some art. So thank you for being such a great inspiration. Thank you. It's only fair. You know, I actually take notes when I'm listening to the nib section because I learned so much from you guys about pens. So Thank you, I guess. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. So whenever you want, I'm, I'm here to talk about ink. Thank you so much. And that takes us to our recommendation section where we tell you about something that we enjoy and that uh, we would like you to enjoy as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be pen or paper related. Um, I've got one uh, I'll start off with. I like drawing uh, people. Uh, interesting looking people, which generally means people with a lot of clothes. Um, like, a, I mean, a rather lot, than I mean, people with no clothes, so you're not mm, sketching at a beach. No, I mean, I I generally don't like drawing when I'm in that scenario. Um, but there's one person who I've been drawing uh, recently, uh, and is a menswear director. Um, I don't know for what. Uh, for what uh, company, it may be a number of companies, because there appears to be a number of companies listed on their Instagram. Uh, But the gentleman's name is Shuhei Nishiguchi. I'm going to send that account to both Sharon and Dai right now, so we can have a a kind of a live reaction. Um, He is a lot of fun to draw. Uh, I've I've gotten a lot of... um, I've gotten a lot of uh, inspiration for uh, rather than having to pick a model or uh, find references, I kind of just get a photo of this guy and you weren't kidding when you said he wears a lot of clothes. Yeah, there's often four to five layers. (laughs) I mean, I hope he lives at like the North Pole or something or somewhere where he can justify all these layers. There's often massive layers, Um, but even during summer. Oh, gee. <laughs> um, but he, he also <laughs> he he also is uh, just uh, one of the people that wears turtlenecks a lot, uh, I, and so he is one of my people. Uh, but that is my recommendation Instagram profile for uh, Shuhei Nishiguchi. Who would like to go next? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll go next. 
So if listeners have caught up on our first episode of 2020, you will know that I spent my very limited break doing not much, but passed out on the couch watching drama series. So my recommendation is a drama series today, which is um, one that is, I think, all now uploaded onto YouTube and most of it is subtitled, I think. It's called The Joy of Life. Um, It is a... 50, 46 episode TV show about a fellow who is writing a novel about a young boy who has a modern mentality, modern memories, who's been sent back into ancient Chinese times. It's a Chinese drama. It's possibly the best one I've seen in at least 12 months. If you guys liked my last recommendation of Ashes of Love, This is completely different. It's so not even the same genre. I rate this higher than I rated Ashes of Love. And I loved Ashes of Love. But this one, um, it's probably a little bit hard to get all the nuances um, if you don't, uh, if you're watching it on Viki. It's also available on Viki. um, If you're watching it on Viki or YouTube with just the subtitles. But thankfully, there are a lot of YouTube videos which are dedicated to explaining the in-jokes and the actual Chinese um, homonyms that they use and the uh, a whole bunch of the jokes that might just not translate very well. It is definitely worth it. It's, it's about a guy who falls in love with a girl who l- eats a lot of chicken legs. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's a great premise. There's so much detail, so much richness to it. And the main character, which is very rare for a lot of Chinese TV shows, he's super smart. I don't know what it is about Chinese dramas where they like making the main characters really dumb. My main uh, criteria for dramas that I really enjoy are that the main character has to be smart. If you've got an idiotic main character, I can't watch it. Uh, Well, I can watch it. I just skip all the idiotic bits. I love dumb main characters in (laughs) comedies. No, these are dramas. Yeah, yeah. I, I love them in comedies. What's it called again? Joy of Life in Chinese. It's called Qing Yu Nian, but it's Joy of Life. So I just sent um, Chuck and Sharon uh, a link to Esther Quack's it's a strong, Instagram. It's a strong counter. She reminds me a lot of um, yeah, the, yeah. Ju- the, the guy that you mentioned. Shuhei. Yeah. Shuhei. It's a yeah. strong the counter. The female version. <laughs> Lots of layers. Yeah. Extremely bold. Turtleneck she wears too. a suit really well. Uh, she's a Singaporean fashion editor. Sure. Fashion inspiration. Love looking at her Instagram. Um, but speaking of my recommendation, so over the Christmas New Year break, I watched two films um, which I think belong on the best of 2019 um, films list, They're both by female directors. And I think they may still be in cinemas by the time this episode airs. Uh, one of them would be Greta Gerwig's Little Women, uh, the newest adaptation of Little Women. And the second is Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. These films, I love them both. Great casts, great performances. The cinematography is beautiful. Um, but in particular, I really, well, watching them in such close succession, I really appreciated the way that they work off each other and terms of having very similar themes about uh, female creativity and female artists. They're both period films, so they're set in, I think, respectively the late 18th and the mid-19th centuries, and they're about 
you know, fem- of a female writer in the case of Little Women and a female portrait painter in the case of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Because they're both made by female directors, they're very metatextual in the fact that they're all about women in the creative fields. And um, they have a lot to say about what it takes, the, the sort of sacrifices that you have to make to be successful in a field that's very, very much dominated, I think, still by men in terms of criticism and also in the production of art, but also um, how important it is to be represented in the arts um, mm. by someone who is like you. Can't be what you can't see. Exactly. Mm. Um, and there's a big conversation in both films about what it means to show something in your art that is not considered to be a worthy subject, whether it's the case of domestic life of you know women who are mothers and daughters, or whether it's the life of servants who are uh, lower class and who are undergoing experiences like having an abortion which is something that happens in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Things like this, it's, it becomes important when we deem it important enough to be portrayed in art, when we don't just shy away from it and you know ignore it as just private women's business. And I think it's important to speak about it. And I think it's important for people, not just women, to see these films. Um, and this you know features into the greater conversation about you know Oscar so male. <laughs> So I encourage you all, if you're a fan of film, not just of women's film, um, to go and see both these films. I think they're examples of great cinema, and I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it if you give them a chance. Well, that closes off our episode and our extra-long double-barrel recording session. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your time, Di. Always a pleasure, Chuck. Uh, thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you. Uh, my name is Chucks Montano, and until next time, listeners, ink well. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenibsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nib Section Facebook page or at the Nib Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pans Oceania. Our producers this episode were Chucks Montano, Sharon Zah, and Diana Dye. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening.